VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, May the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout. Get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So some encouraging forecasts for the May long weekend. I just heard Brian Medora talking about temperatures into the teens. Usually at around this time of year, we get an update from the provincial government about what bookings look like in the provincial campsites. So I don't know what it's looking like this year, but if you've got some plans for the long weekend, let's have a fun conversation about it today if you are into it. All right. So for athletes, you know, it's one thing to get paid to be a professional athlete, but you see so many of them, it's not uncommon at all, to do something else in the business world, whether it be cologne or perfume or a sporting apparel business, or in the restaurant business. It was on this date in 1964, the very first Tim Hortons opened in Hamilton, Ontario. Many people, you know, refer to it as very much Canadiana. Some people complain about the caliber of the coffee. I'll leave that up to you. Double Double has become part of the vernacular. But Tim Hortons is still a massive outlet. There's 5,352 locations of Tim Hortons in 16 different countries. First one opened in 64, of course, owned by hockey player Tim Horton and one partner. And also they get into the sneaker business. So it was today in 2020 that Michael Jordan's autographed Air Nike 1s, trainers that he wore in 1985, they were sold in an online auction for a record $560,000 for a pair of used sneakers. And of course, Jordan's synonymous with Nike and the brand. All right, local athlete. This young fella, what a year he's having. So it's uh, Mount Pearl native Gleb Extigniev. He was the flag bearer at the most recent Canada Summer Games or Winter Games. He trains out of the Campia Gymnastics. He just come back from the uh, 2023 Pan American Junior Trampoline Championships where he won two gold medals. One as in the senior trampoline and also in the synchronized competition. His partner's from Quebec, Etienne Cloutier. What a year. Way to go, Gleb. Terrific stuff. Bravo to that boy. That young man, pardon me. <coughs> All right, a couple of notes off the top, which really aren't earth-shattering, but for some people it would be part of what makes the place unique and some growing trend numbers that I think we should be aware of and talk about. Okay, the story comes from Summerford, where a Shetland pony owned by the Hawkins family, uh, what's the uh, horse's name? Sparks. It's an absolutely beautiful animal. Sparks has been in the community for years, some five years, roaming around. Everyone loves to see, catch a sight of this Shetland pony. And we've been talking about, for instance, the Newfoundland pony. And there's a, so a society out there trying to protect those animals. So we went from a population of about 12,000 animals in the 1980s, just a few hundred around today. They say basically it's because of municipal bylaws. The ponies need the opportunity to roam and to feed off the common ground. And because bylaws have changed, consequently, we've seen a reduction in these numbers of animals. So the Shetland pony is not a Newfoundland pony, but I do think it speaks to some larger issues regarding municipal bylaws, the opportunity to have backyard farming, homesteading, some livestock, chickens or otherwise, uh, or Shetland ponies or Newfoundland ponies or sheep or goats or whatever. But this one here struck me, and this is what I'm talking about. So the family was given a letter from the municipal council saying that the barn that they have does not have a permit. The family admits there is no permit for the barn. Consequently, within 30 days, the barn and the pony have to go. So 
The question arises is that if Sparks has been in the community of Summerford for as many as five years, roaming around, zero complaints, where does this come from all of a sudden? Like, is there actually a nuisance being put forward in the community with the presence of this little Shetland pony? And I know this is not earth-shattering stuff, but we can get all into the traumatic, emotional, and big industry conversations throughout the program, as you know. But what's going on there? You know, is it all of a sudden a problem? You know, there's always going to be one busybody or another that comes forward, makes a complaint loud enough behind closed doors, and then you see these types of issues. And also, we're hoping to speak with uh, someone today about sheep. The number of farms in the province has long been a concern. You know, in a province that can least afford to lose farms, even let's talk about numbers from 2011. So, in the most recent census of agriculture, about 407 farms in this province. That's down 20.2% from 2011. The uh, numbers decrease nationally by 5.9%. The largest decline in the number of farms in the country is here. And there's lots of reasons why. And it does not jive with the province's thoughts of expanding agricultural opportunities and doubling food production, which has been achieved in a couple of notable areas, but, and in the world of sheep sharing. So apparently the sheep producers of Newfoundland and Labrador, the, they're talking about the numbers of their membership. In the early 90s, membership of about 100, now down to 35 in recent years. And apparently, so say people who are involved, including Brenda Aylward out in Point Carwin. We're hoping to speak to Brenda. One of the concerns people have with keeping sheep is the spring shearing. You know, if you look at TV and the sheep shearing contest and the Kiwis from New Zealand who make it look so easy, apparently it's not easy. Not easy on the animal and consequently not easy on the person who's shearing the sheep to get rid of their woolly winter coat. So what they did is brought in a couple of professionals for a workshop. So we'll talk hopefully with Brenda this morning, if she has time, about the decrease in the number of farms that are keeping sheep, whether it be as hobby farms or uh, an industrial or commercial operation, and what the people learned about the sharing of the sheep. And I know the ponies and the sheep, not the biggest issues in the world, but hey, there you go. All right, let's move on to something that is a much bigger story. This one is wild. Canada and Canadian teenagers vape use the electronic cigarette more than any other jurisdiction in the world. That's not good. You know, there's been lots of thoughts and talk about it, and apparently for teens, it's much more important to have opportunity for fruit-flavored vapes versus adults with, by and large, are trying to use these vapes to quit smoking. So here's some of the work done by Canada's Canadian Student Tobacco, Alcohol, and Drugs Survey. took place between September September 21 and June 22. So they were talking to 61,000-plus teenagers in grades 7 to 12, and only 29% of those students have never tried an e-cigarette. Some of the daily use numbers are the absolute highest in the world. So if it is about the flavors and if it is about access, remember, it's not that long ago where all the changes in the packaging of uh, cigarettes or cigarillos or other tobacco products, they were made, took away all the coloring and all the distinct labeling that would separate the Rothmans from the Demorier from the player's life from the exports. That all went in behind closed doors. Vaping, not so much. I mean, all you have to do is drive by a high school or a junior high and the waves, the bellows of vape smoke or vape, vape, (laughs) vapor is just madness. So how do we address this? Because people talk about the fact that, you know, there's all these myths about what may or may not be a gateway drug. Cannabis into more illicit drugs like cocaine and heroin and the like, which does not seem to be the case. No one's ever been able to prove that it is that kind of gateway. But there's more and more documentation talking about moving from vaping into smoking. 
Now, smoking rates amongst youth are still pretty stable in this country. They've gone down somewhat in the recent past. But to know that our teenagers are vaping at the highest rate of anywhere in the world has got to be of concern. I mean, they're easy to get. And then people talk, well, let's just ban it, right? But prohibition has never worked on anything. So you ban them, and all they do is go online and buy them from some supplier outside of the country, including the fruit flavors. So what do we actually do to try to curb this really troubling uh, move here? So daily vaping rates were 8% across the students surveyed and close to 12% for those in grades 10 to 12. So every single day pulling on the vape. Concerning number right there. All right. We're anticipating in the very near future, I would think, an update from the province on approval for one, two, or more of these wind-to-green hydrogen projects. The one that gets all the talk on the Port of Port Peninsula, John Risley and his World Energy GH2. They have secured funding from a company in South Korea for a, one of these projects. The news release is a little bit confusing. I don't think it's for the Port of Port operation, but for another one that they're working on. So we know that this industry is in its infancy, and it will absolutely bring some economic upside to the world, but they've secured this funding with a uh, group called the SK Group. They've got more than 200 companies across the energy, life sciences, advanced materials, mobility, and semiconductor industries. The country, through the most recent federal budget, has made it a pretty attractive place to do this type of work. And we know the upside for these energy companies, greener energy companies, whether it be the wind, the land, the deep water ports, proximity to market, you got to believe that if they're getting some traction, now this is not massive investment. It's, it's uh, what is it, 50 million U.S. dollars into one of their projects, 20% of the first phase of that project. And you got to believe that with the presence of the provincial government and the 75-person delegation that was in Rotterdam for the World Hydrogen Summit, they were talking about we're there to sell this province as a place for investment. So... If they're talking about selling the province as a place for investment, you don't need to read between the lines to think that approval for this project or whichever project actually has a business model that people think can work is coming to its suite. So World Energy GH2 has secured that funding. And, of course, Mr. Risley, one of the stories that caught people's attention, whether it be the premier at the Salmon Fishing Lodge in Labrador or members of the Stephenville Council on his private jet. So we can take it on if you are so inclined. But... It looks very likely that come this Friday, there will indeed be job action at WestJet. Strike or a lockout, and that doesn't matter to the traveling public. But it was just yesterday that WestJet talked about offering refunds. So, of course, they are obliged by law in the Passenger Bill of Rights to take this type of action. But Tuesday, looking at a Friday deadline, what about all the people who've already incurred costs with canceling their flight and rebooking elsewhere? What happens to the non-refundable costs that people have in place, whether it be with Airbnbs or otherwise? So it's one thing for them to take this action, but here's some things you need to know about what WestJet owes you if indeed you have a flight booked and are nervous about it. But those questions about people already making the move and absorbing the cost or renegotiating their flights, or pardon, rebooking the flight. So option one, if you want to continue to travel. Rebooking free of charge on the next available flight operated by any carrier, including comp competitors. So if you have to be booked with an airport that was not the original airport you were flying out of, they also have to cover your transportation costs to go to that other airport. Option two, refund and return to points of origin. So refund the original form of payment within 30 days of all unused flight segments and segments that no longer serve any purpose. So, boy, 
it really does seem to me that's the 11th hour for WestJet to make this pitch to their traveling public. And then there's a leaked memo from WestJet to the union representing this 1,850 WestJet pilots about the monetary offer that's on the table. So the union says some of these numbers are cherry-picked, but here's what it says, is that for pilots flying a narrow-body jet, that would be just a jet with just one aisle, like a 737, the offer is $300,000. That does not include overtime or any stipends. If in the wide-body jets, pilots have been offered in the neighborhood of $350,000, the highest-paid workers in the industry in the country. So we'll see where that comes, but I think people who are... Planning travel or with WestJet should rightfully be concerned. And here it becomes the biggest issue. Like the renewed or rejigged passenger bill of rights simply doesn't go far enough. You know, if you look at the European Union and their model, it's something that we should really seriously consider adopting here. The airlines, of course, were extremely hesitant for any further crackdown or rights associated with the passengers. But it seems to be a little bit of a flawed thought, right? How about this? So if the passenger bill of rights was as stringent as it is in the European Union, wouldn't that give Canadians more comfort with booking flights, not worrying about lost luggage or schedule interruptions, knowing that there was some protection there for them? Consequently, probably more inclined to travel via air, which would be good for the airlines. Now, with some of these contract negotiations, they've been at the table since September, so it's dragged on an awful long time here. No question some of those associated costs are going to be passed along to the traveling public. So we've got a problem in the country's air. We, we just simply do. And don't get anyone started here in the province with the cost to even travel inside Newfoundland and Labrador, which is extraordinary. You want to take it on? Let's go. So as Tom mentioned yesterday, the numbers regarding inflation came out while I was on air. I hadn't seen them. So there was a slight uptick in inflation from 43 to 4.1%. No real firm idea where the Bank of Canada is going on this. But food inflation remains stubbornly high, still in the neighborhood of almost 10% in inflation regarding the cost of groceries. Some options have come back to worth a little bit or slowed their growth rate regarding price, but those inflation numbers are there. And talk about foodstuffs. So the, apparently the premier has decided to now formally intervene into the snow crab standoff between the FFAW and some of their harvesters and the Association of Seafood Producers. Now we know some harvesters have decided to go for the crab. Fair enough. Some are still going with the fleet-wide tie-up. But there's no real definition of what this intervention means. And certainly, does it look like there's going to be any change in price or trip limit issues this season? I suppose the long-term vision has always been to try to change the structure of price setting and all the rest of these bugaboos that have uh, led to this emotional standoff in seasons to come. So the thought is from some harvesters, including one who has said, I remain tied up, I really want to go, but I don't want to put up with whatever might happen on the wharf. Overnight, that same harvester said, I think we're going tomorrow because they've just had enough. The crew wants to go, people are running out of their employment insurance, and of course the mood in some of these communities. We spoke with John Norman out in Bonavista, we've heard from Mayor Tiller in New West Valley, I heard an interview with the Mayor of La Cie this morning. People are stressed to the max. So what government intervention looks like, not really sure, but apparently the Premier is now formally involved, as was requested by the FFAW. And of course what you'll see on social media is people poo-pooing it and you know, just the personal attacks on one entity or one person or organization or another. But the union wanted this, and now they have it. So let's see if that means any advancement in. And inside the fishery, 
Long-term concerns here in this province about the concentration of foreign ownership, specifically in the processing side. You know, it was the President's Royal Greenland and some more recent purchases that have, people, have given people pause, and the government acknowledges it, even though they don't have any idea about what percentage of foreign concentration is acceptable or if any more approvals for sales will happen in the future. But there has been a survey across the Atlantic fishing fleets, and it's not all the fleets. Here's who's been invited. All commercial fishing, fishing license holders, offshore, midshore, and the exempt fleets. All those not classified as inshore owner-operators. And they were looking at the 2,500 commercial license holders on all three coasts about where the money comes from, who owns it. The good news on that side is that it turns out that there's less than 2% that have foreign ownership, whether it be in part or in full. So in the hands of Canadian owners and investors. So then goes on to talk about the uh, owner-operator issue, which has not been fully implemented and enforced by law, even though there's a court ruling that says quite clearly that they have to divest and to restructure those loans or arrangements. But the good news is Canadians own almost 98% uh, plus of the Atlantic fishing fleets, not including the inshore owners themselves. Anyway, lots of fishery talk. All right. I spent a bit of time with my eyes on Ottawa yesterday, a couple of big announcements. One, of course, bail reform. I will admit that some of it is kind of confusing. Here's some of the high-level decisions that have been, oh, pardon me, proposals with the uh, legislation that's been put on the table. BC 48, amendments to the criminal code. So it says, for those who have been charged with a serious violent offense involving a weapon, one with a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment, and they had been pre previously convicted in a similar offense within the last five years, now what they do is not that they can't get bail, but they face what they call reverse onus. What that means, the accused has to show why they should be released instead of the uh, prosecution proving that they should not be released. So, yes, that is a change, and we can bring it forward. There's also the reverse onus for firearm and in intimate partner violence offenses. Okay. A couple of strange things. It says it would allow the courts to take into consideration community safety and the accused's history of violence when making a bail decision. My question to that is, isn't that already what we should be doing with every single case? Allowing the court to take into consideration community safety? Like, that's a strange comment coming from the minister. But there are a couple of issues. They also talk about indigenous peoples, who represent some 27% of offenders in the total offender population. That was in 2020 to 2021. It continues uh, to allow the judge, the presiding judge, to consider the person's indigenous status as a issue inside whether or not they'll be granted bail. And a lot of this comes, of course, when there was a person who was out on bail, who is indigenous, Randall McKenzie, killed an Ontario poli provincial police officer last year. So, and part of the consideration for bail was indeed his indigenous status. Now, Mr. Poliev, leader of the CPC, says that this bill comes up far too short and talking about this indigenous-related matter. My question, and I can't answer this one because I'm not an indigenous Canadian, is do indigenous Canadians feel the same way that the minister does? Now, when the justice critic in the Conservative Party was asked about this, refused to answer, but I'd be curious to know if indigenous peoples would be happy enough if bail consideration regarding the potential for public safety and for a violent offender to remain behind bars and not be granted bail. That's the question I would ask, and I can't answer it because, of course, as I just said, I'm not an indigenous person. But the bail reform? Okay. And the Michael Chong testimony yesterday was actually fascinating. And this, of course, is regarding the timelines of whether or not he was briefed in a timely fashion about a Chinese diplomat threatening his family back in China. 
And why I call it fascinating is that very often what we just see is a litany of politically charged rhetoric as opposed to any legitimate suggestions coming from one party or another. So he talked about more transparency to, uh, to combat threats, finding systemic errors, fixing the machinery of government, improvement of information sharing, and transitioning some of the national security models that are in place. He's right. You know, not on the heels of that, the prime minister said that CSIS now has to uh, brief parliamentarians on these types of matters immediately, which is all good. And, of course, we're all waiting for next May 23rd when the, the special rapporteur delivers his recommendations to government about whether or not a public inquiry is next steps to ensure the integrity of our votes. Anyway, last one. So it looks like the province is sending some assistance to the province of Alberta battling some 80-plus wildfires. Almost 30 are out of control. If you've got friends in Alberta and have been speaking with them and like to share what they're seeing and hearing and feeling, let's do it. I spoke with a couple of my buddies in Calgary last night. They didn't have fires close by. They were never under any eviction orders or evacuation orders. But now the smoke is in the city. The pictures are unbelievable. A picture from yesterday morning at 10 o'clock very much, much looked like dusk. It is dark. The air quality is desperate. People are told not to go outside unless they have the appropriate protection. So we're sending help. And I suppose that's the right thing to do. Right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvosim.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi. Hi there. Can you hear me? Uh, this is Angela. How are you? I'm doing okay, Angela. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Um, I'm calling this morning about a school issue. Um, my child is in elementary school, and I recently discovered that she was involved in a sexuality group uh, without my knowledge or consent. Um, this well, is a group. This is a group that the uh, guidance counselor had created at their school um, with intention to help one child who was having questions, and as a result, uh, to help this child. She recruited this child's circle of friends into this group um, to talk about sexuality, and they were meeting secretly at uh, lunch and recess times at school while other children were outside playing, enjoying free time. Okay, and your concern is what in particular? Like, were they compelled to join the group? Were they told they had no choice to join the group? Or did they understand what the teacher was trying to achieve by forming this group? Um, I was told it is a voluntary group. Okay. Um, but my child was approached by this teacher and asked to join. Um, and my child is 10 years old. This is a LGBTQ support group. Okay. Um, you can go on the government website and see the guidelines. It's intended for grades 7 to 12. It's intended for high school students. And my child is in, is in elementary school. Um, so I was not happy about that. And my intent in calling here today is to let other parents know that this is going on in elementary schools because it is a group that is meant to be secret. Um, I know one child in this group was told not to tell the parents. How did you find out about it? Your child told you? My child, my child told me. Um, my child told me they were excited to see the guidance counselor. And that caught me off guard because my child doesn't see the guidance counselor. And when I questioned her and asked why, um, she told me that they had a group. It was called GSA, Gender Sexuality Alliance. It's mm -hmm. also called um, Gay Straight Alliance. And they had met five or six times up at this point when I found out. What are they talking about? 
As my understanding that it's a um, just an open discussion. I spoke with the guidance counsellor. She assured me that nothing uh, sexual had been spoken about at this point because it was early in the group. But at the same time, she told me they spoke about uh, someone in the group had a transgender neighbour. So it was giving my child terminology and questions that she didn't have prior to this. So I did um, approach the school the next day and tried to get some answers. And um, the principal was aware of this group. The group was approved. He also knew that the group was intended for high school students and still approved it and told the teacher to more so tread lightly because these are children. And um, he was unaware of who was in the group, so he was unaware that Maj Hub was in it, but he didn't know of the group. Um, so you, got, you mentioned that your child now has different terminology than they had prior to being part of this group. So mm-hmm. is that type of information, do you think, helpful or, or harmful? Because the world of sexuality is everywhere we turn. It's exactly. part of our day-to-day lives on television and every commercial and certainly lurks mm-hmm. around every corner, whether it be overtly or not in our phones, which we carry around day in and day out. So do you think the information being shared has been helpful for your child? Um, I don't think. I think it creates more questions than answers. Um, I think it. I think the intent is to help children's mental health, but I think it's actually doing the opposite. It's creating uh, great confusion. And I am a person who would support anyone um, as long as you are a consenting adult. But these are children. What sort of questions do you think have arose because of these conversations, or confusion, whichever uh, way? Sure, well, I know my child doesn't know what transgender is. Right. So that she was kind of like, what is this? You know, there's boys and there's girls. She did not understand. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, if you're going to help a child, by all means, if a child has questions, I'm all for support and getting that child some answers and help. But this, my child didn't have questions or concerns. This was to help another child and by all means help a child and, you know, converse with that parent to help your child. But this is was recruiting other children and it was meant it was done racist and dinner times to be kept secret so are you not going to allow your daughter to participate any further no the group is no longer because i spoke with all the parents of this class and it was a big uproar everyone felt for the most part the same way that i feel and the principal was called and there were visits made and by the end of that day the group was cancelled do you think that had the guidance counselor or the principal sent communication to various parents saying that we are uh, thinking about doing this and there was upfront discussion before they had their first meeting, would you feel differently? Absolutely. I think every parent, um, when it comes to sexuality, this is not the basics of school. This is something that parents should have a say in how it's explained and how it's approached. And each parent should decide if their child is to participate in such a group. But parents are not being notified of these groups. Sexual education is one of those tricky conversations, isn't it? Because people will wonder aloud whether or not there are certainly age-appropriate conversations happening. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, and this is just my perspective, is that 
at some point, I think even as parents, now my children are in their 20s. We did indeed talk birds and bees and sexual education, I think pretty freely at home. And I can't remember exactly what age some of these types of conversations were entertained. But the mm. thought in some corners is that if you talk about these things, can consequently that'll become part of your child's reality. Mm. As opposed to, you know, sexuality conversations are probably happening at much younger ages than some of us realize, you know, because there is that curiosity that drives some of these conversations. And just from my perspective, and I don't know whether or not 10-year-olds should be having this type of chat if they didn't have any of their own questions. Mm. But at some point, I think what happens is they get these sex conversations with their peers who don't know anything about it, as opposed to someone who's an adult who understands it and is willing to talk about it openly and honestly. So I think, you know, there is a fair conversation to be had here about when we have these types of conversations, because it doesn't have to include every single thing in the sexual envelope mm -hmm. at the first class. It doesn't, you know, but gradually people need to understand that not everyone is the same. And, you know, like if there's a, in, inside even a grade four classroom, if we resist even talking about the fact that Johnny or Jane has two dads or two moms, then I think we're kind of isolating one child or another in the classroom, as opposed to everyone acknowledging or understanding that this is a possibility and this is happening in the world. And because when you have that sort of exposure and reasonable age-appropriate conversation, I think it eases the conversation down the line with, when it comes to actual sex, when it comes to issues regarding uh, transgendered people, uh, transgendered individuals, what have you. So I, th I think, you know, it's step by step. I understand your concern. It should never be done under the secret, uh, the cloak of darkness. We should be very upfront about what we're talking about, when we're talking about it, and why we're talking about <coughs> it. Yes. I completely agree. Um, and my child, my children are taught that everyone is different. All families are different. You know, there is kindness week at school, and I, I feel that encloses everything when it comes to children. Um, I really do, and that's just the way I feel about it. This is a group that is meant to be secret. It's a group that they know there's going to be backlash, so it is kept swept under the rug. And just my point in calling today, if I can notify one or two parents that can speak to their child and and you know, find out that they're in this group and have you know their voices heard too, then that's why I'm calling. They're welcome to call. The you know, curiously, today is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it's really quite clear that in certain parts of the world that this persists, that level of hate and vitriol, which is why I think it might be helpful to talk about the issues because what we'll see, especially uh, south of the border unfolding is distinct pockets of very hateful rhetoric. And that just creates a very dangerous situation for transgendered or homosexuals or bisexuals because, you know, we've got this polarized conversation about whether or not if someone is uh, a gay or a lesbian or bi or trans, is that all of a sudden everyone around them is at risk when, of course, it's simply not true. So we just have to be aware of how we talk about it, when we talk about it. But I understand your concern. As a parent, I'd want to know before the conversation is had in a private group that meets at recess and lunchtime before they have meeting number one. And if I walked through the process with that guidance counselor and was comfortable, then I'd let my child go. If I wasn't, I wouldn't let them go. End exactly. of story. The point is the parents got to have the say. I don't, uh, don't dispute that at all. Mm -hmm. And I will say another thing. Uh, many, many parents feel the same way that I do. And many parents would not want this um, discussed with their child. I know some would. But the thing is, like, we're not given that option. Let me and bounce. Okay, I'm sorry. I was, so people are afraid to speak up because of 
uh, one thing like that you just mentioned, the transphobia and homophobia, it's not about that. No, but it is in, the, in society. It might not be inside your child's head or in that group or even in your school. But mm-hmm. the unfortunate reality is we see it happening. And it yeah. does present a very dangerous uh, situation for the community, regardless if you're inside the LGBTQ plus community. Let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say that there should be no such thing as sex education in school, period. It should be left up to the parents or the caregivers to decide when and what to talk about. For me, and I'll just bounce this off you and I'll get your reaction. For me, I think that's a bit backwards because let's just say, for instance, that one parent or caregiver or another is completely uncomfortable with the sex ed conversation, so maybe never entertains it, and all the child ever gets to know about sex, they learn in the playground or down by the river. Mm-hmm. Or they think that there's a distinct problem or a sin associated with homosexuality, and so it never broached that with their child. But consequently, it's a reality of society, and maybe they find out the hard way, or they become part of a peer group that has a distinct problem maybe even an emotional or physical problem with people who are homosexuals, and then that becomes part of their ideology as opposed to hearing about it from a trained professional. What do you think? Does sex ed belong in school, period? I think the basics belong in school. Um, Anything other, I think it's the parents' discretion. I think um, right now, I think children are being swayed to be transgender, and it's it's no wonder because it's celebrated right now. Like, if you are... A little different than what, I guess, the normal stereotype, I guess you are celebrated. And to me, that is more harmful than someone experiencing transphobia. I mean, we all are are bullied at some point in our life. It's not okay to bully. You know, you got to treat everyone with respect and kindness. But kids are being swayed. Do you think that talking about trans uh, transgender uh, influences a child to transition? Absolutely. So, you know, on that conversation, I think there's actually a big age conversation to be had here, too. Mm -hmm. It's one thing if the transition is talked about and they start to wear their hair differently or to dress differently to reflect the transition. What we have to absolutely talk about is when it's appropriate to entertain uh, hormone or puberty blockers and or any surgeries or what have you. And that consultation has to be long and broad and it shouldn't happen until they're certainly much older than some of these situations we see and hear about today. But mm. I don't know if anybody talking about homosexuality all of a sudden thinks I'm going to give it a try. You either are or you're not. You know? so I don't ha- share that same opinion. I really don't. I think children are swayed. And I know a lot of people feel that way as well. And kids are very influential. And like I said, they are celebrated. And it's a, it's a scary time because, you know, if my child had questions, I would, you know, try to help them the best I could. I would get them to see a doctor. And right now this is being pushed. Like there are not many questions being asked before drugs are being pushed on children. Yeah, but of course that ends up in a doctor's office or a a psychologist's office. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as just going to the doctor and say, you know, I want puberty blockers here or hormone hormone transitioning drugs and that type of support. People just don't go to their prescription pads and write as cavalierly as that. No, it's true. (laughs) It's true what? It is true that it's it's very easy to attain and there... Oh, no, it's not. It It, is. It really isn't. 
Okay. Yeah, no, it, it's not. And the only reason I uh, can say that, like I said, like I did, is because I've gone down this path of trying to figure it out. Because mm-hmm. there was a family who was really quite cross with a very similar concern that you're bringing forward this morning mm-hmm. about how we talk about these different sexual issues in school and how easy it is or is not to get drugs or how easy or not it is to get uh, physical altering surgery. And it's not as easy as portrayed quite often, which I think leads to kind of strange conversations, not based on what's happening, but based on worry. And it's fine to worry as a parent. I'm a parent. I worry about my kids every day on every issue under the sun. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you called this morning. Uh, I appreciate your concerns. And if anyone else would like to chime in, we can do it. Just a very quick question. Does Does your daughter have a smartphone? Uh, no, she does not. Okay, because that's one thing where when we talk about these issues, if we say we shouldn't talk about it at a certain age, and all we know is that they have a phone, and every single sexual thing you want to see or talk about in this world is right in the palm of their hand when they Absolutely. have a smartphone. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, just let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number five. Chris, you're on the air. Good day. How are you, Patty? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, you know, living the dream, eh? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I want to make a few comments. I'm a small-time farmer here in Central. Yep. And I uh, I do appreciate listening to you a lot on open line talking about food safety and, and bringing our concerns to light anyway, and you don't get much support from the farmers, so I do appreciate you doing that. No problem. Uh, yeah, really. But I uh, I wanted to make a comment about the Summerford homesteading livestock issue. Um, every year uh, we plant about... 15, 20 acres of vegetables, but we also subsidize our income by going over to Nova Scotia and picking up small piglets that are about 30 to 25 pounds. We ship these, we bring these all over and people from smaller communities buy them and whatever to to feed themselves through the winter. That uh, really helps out. And, and like I said, if they, if these small communities that have always allowed this that I really feel that they're really they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because those older people in the community that buy a pig and feed it and, and slaughter it are going to lose out. I think so, too. I mean, if you hear from people in the know who have looked at the historical context here, whether it be about Newfoundland ponies, Shetland ponies, chickens or pigs or goats or what have you, when municipalities cracked down in the 80s, we saw an appreciable impact on every single front when we talk about uh, foods that you grow yourself, whether it be all the way from root vegetables to having chickens and collecting their eggs or the piglets and slaughter for ham or bacon or what have you. You know, you cannot have an intrusive backyard farm. You cannot create a nuisance in your backyard but i think maybe we've gone a step too far with some of these municipal bylaws like even if you just look at the example of this uh, pony in summerford for years the pony's been there zero complaints and then out of nowhere gotta go you know you just have to wonder why some communities are choosing to do what they are doing Yes, and, and farming is made of some communities. I mean, uh, you look at Cormac or you look at CBS. I mean, that's pretty well a lot of the income that came to bring those families in those areas, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing that really bothers me is because a lot of my piglets go to senior citizens, 
And they live in communities that are nice ways away from grocery stores or, you know, they're not in St. John's, they're not in Grand Falls, you know, and they're not in Gander. But the issue is, like, they'll have that piglet and they'll feed it. Every week they'll go to the feed store and buy a $30 bag of feed, go home, feed it. After 10 weeks, I mean, they got 400 pounds of meat on the table, in their freezer. I mean, that's how substantial this piglet thing is. And, and most of my customers... They're buying. They're only buying one, two at the most, right? Yeah, and, and any sort of piece of property in rural Newfoundland that has two piglets on it, it's hard to interpret that as being a problem for the community at large. Yeah, and the piglets are only there for fifteen weeks. That's right. right? Yeah. So, like I said, I, I just really feel like the the community should really, you know, try to. Uh, help the people in their community out because, like I said, this, you know, some of these animals, yeah, they're a Shetland pony, yes, that's a pet, that's fine. and But some uh, some of those animals are also for food and eggs and whatever, right? And I yeah. think that, I don't think, like, you know, like when you're talking Summerford, and I'm not sure how many people or any other community that's under 3,000 people, I mean, the density isn't there as in if you were downtown, like I said, Grand Falls or St. John's, right? Absolutely, and not every community is created equal. I mean, I can totally understand if you're talking about a dense East End neighborhood in the city of St. John's and someone wants to have a load of chickens and piglets and goats and whatever the case may be, it's vastly different than what we're talking about in Summerford or in Port Corwin or these types of communities. So, yeah, there's not going to be one-size-fits-all. But, yeah. you know, more consideration by municipal governments, because if we're talking about foodstuffs, it's the same argument I was making regarding moose licenses, for instance. The reductions for the locals, not for the outfitters or the out-of-province licenses. People who want a backyard farm or homestead, it's growing in popularity, basically because not only is it uh, something to do with your family, it keeps you from having to spend as much money as people are spending in the grocery store. There's lots of wins for communities and individuals by loosening up somewhat, restrictions to keep the nuisance level down but a little bit more realistic as to why people do it and why they need to do it right and and like i said uh, like i said we you know we have you know five or six for our family and and people too right and uh, like i said it's not an easy thing to do because you have to clean it out and everything else but if you're a senior citizen and you're retired you enjoy doing it you use the manure for your gardens i mean you know like really i i, I think that they're blowing this out of proportion really right um, and it really bugs me. <laughs> yeah, it kind of irritates me as well, and we'll see if there's going to be any changes in the future because, you know, municipalities realize the pressures that their citizens are facing, and if some of those can be alleviated by having a piglet and the 400 pounds of meat after 15 weeks, that goes a long way to protecting your community, your citizens, from having those trips to the grocery store. So, you know, I get it. It's not as simple as as we just throw caution in the wind, people do whatever they want, but it seems like we've got it a little bit too strict for everyone's collective best interest. Right, right. And, Patty, before I leave, I just want to congratulate you on the, uh, your open-mindedness to the agriculture industry. We're listening to you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and uh, I'm not involved in it. My grandparents on my mother's side were farmers, but I see the importance, and I see the, the, you know, the shrinking number of farms and the shrinking amount of, even though I think we probably do produce more than we realize here, there's been some good work done by the Food Producers Forum to encapsulate yeah. all the production here, whether it be in the backyards or homesteads or otherwise, but there's still more that can be done, and I appreciate you making time for the show, Chris. Yeah, like it's an uphill battle when you're farming, but uh, especially in Newfoundland, like I said, with the cost of shipping fertilizer in, and, yeah. and you know, I mean, it's, it's it's crazy, right? Like we're paying two sixty a ton right now to ship in 
uh, a ton of fertilizer, which, you know, we're paying top dollar for the fertilizer, and then we got to pay an extra uh, $260 for that ton to be shipped in. So I don't know, you know, where we can go from here. Years ago, we had a freight subsidy program, but uh, that's gone by the wayside right now, and uh, I'm not sure if, if it would work or not, actually. I'm not sure either, but I really appreciate this. Off to the break I go. Stay in touch, Chris. All right. You, Patty. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, let's get uh, back on track with the breaks. When we come back, Vern is there to talk about the ferry. We're Belle Island. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Verna, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's been a while since I've talked to you about the votes. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's not the votes were up against now. Well, the Flanders is down for maintenance with mechanical issues. We don't know for how long. Uh, our hospital is closed last night from 8 o'clock last night to 8 o'clock this morning. Mm-hmm. And we have one boat. So there's a call out because people can't, if you've got an emergency here, we no, no longer can go to the hospital. You've got to call the ambulance and they they assess you and then they take you to St. John's. So, of course, if that's the call through the night during the rest period for the crew, we have no boat in the morning. Our boat now t- this morning is not going to run to 10.45. And why well, Why all the interruptions with the ferry? You know, it's one thing to talk about the emergency room or what have you, but what's behind the ferry interruption? Uh, because we only have one ferry. Flanders is not running. Okay. And the crew from the Flanders is not efficient to go over to the Legionnaires for us to have enhanced because you need special tickets special qualifications as far as the captain and the engineers to operate the Legionnaire. And guess what? The government don't have anybody in there. There's only select a few that are in there that can do that job with the Legionnaire. So we can't have two crews, like the other crew now is sitting on the the Flanders, waiting for it to be repaired, because they can't, not the crew themselves aren't qualified. It's the regards to the captain and the engineer. You need special tickets to operate the Legionnaire. Right. But instead of having everybody with them tickets, so everybody is cross-qualified to go from one boat to the other, that's not how it works. Is there anything keeping any of the crew from uh, trying to retrieve the cross-ticket? Well, I don't know. I'd like to know. I'd like for the transportation to get on and give us some answers because they're not. We're not getting it. We don't even know how long the Flanders is going to be down for. And of course, this is a trickling effect now. So, how are them doctors and nurses that come over here to work today for eight o'clock? They can't get over here because we have no boat at ten forty till ten forty-five, eleven thirty from the cove. We have no teachers from the cove to come over and teach our children. So there you have health care, education, transportation. And who runs all this? The government. Yeah, of course. And there's always going to be the potential for a vessel to be down for one reason or another. But the interesting point uh, for me is whether or not the crew is trained to take on the Legionnaire so that we can keep it in service because transportation safety, you know, means that some crews after a certain amount of time have to come off the water. We all get that. But I will find out whether or not yeah, that... Not, oh, sorry. It's not just a direct... Sorry about that. It's not just the crew, like the general crew. It's in regards to the engineers and the captains. Yeah, I've... I've I have to have them. that special ticket. I include them in like my, said, when I say crew. Yeah. 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 And like I say, the crew. And, of course, we would have to have more crew fought with 
the Legionnaire uh, from the Flanders besides because there's more more crew on the Legionnaire. It's a bigger boat, yeah. more traffic. And that being said, uh, they're saying they don't have enough crew. But there's, I know for a fact there are people that are being trained now that have taken the course in PEI and other places that are more than willing to go to work, train them, get them on there. Uh, get them uh, up the regards the captains and the engineers get them upgraded so we don't come across this situation but there's no plan in motion it's like once it happens well we got nothing planned oh well the lounge is going to put up with it and there's all these people that are to work this morning they never got to work this morning yeah, I will find out about that training issue. You know, I don't know if we're ever going to have a bunch of other people who don't have full-time employment in the ferry system have these types of tickets and just sit around doing something else and be uh, backfills. But whether or not the government offers it to them or they have to pursue it themselves and what that looks like and who, who covers those uh, training costs, I don't know the answer, but I'll try to find it. Yeah, because right now, like I said, in regards to the Flanders being down, the crew, the captain, and the engineer are sitting there until fixed. But if that engineer and captain were qualified, they could be transferred over to the Legionnaire, and they wouldn't have, this morning it wouldn't have been down because we would have two crews working. I understand. And we also have the crew with the Beaumont that's in the dry dock. So where's that crew and where's them captains? They're, they're not qualified either. I don't know. You know, and I, I hope you can get answers because the people of Belle Island can't. And since they put in that 411 system, the 511 system, yeah, we don't have, say. we don't get no answers as far as the user committee. We don't get no answers anymore. They don't want to talk to it, the people. Yeah, they I can try to get that info. I'll try to get the answers to those questions. I should be able to. Thank you very much, Patty. You have a great day. You too, Verna. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, before we get to the news, let's talk about the Heavenly Creatures fundraiser. Upcoming, that's Jessica Rendell on 3. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be I, I'm on the hunt for books for the animals. So uh, on June 10th, we have a Spring Fair, we're calling it, coming up, which is going to be one part you know, local vendors, one part a giant book sale, and one part vintage items. Uh, somebody closed their antique store last year and gave us the, the leftover vintage stuff, so we're going to include that as well. Um, but yeah, we need as many books as we can get, you know, everything from children's books to... I mean, not encyclopedias, but, you know, we'll take textbooks and as long as they're fairly current and, uh, yeah, everything in between. So we don't have any storage. Usually when we do these sales, we ask people to drop the books off the day before. So this sale is going to be taking place at uh, the same or in the same spot uh, in which another big book sale uh, occurred there a few weeks ago with the... Um, the University Women's Sale. I don't know if you heard about that one. Yeah, we had uh, one of the organizers on the show uh, raise the money for scholarships for females going to post-secondary and the like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that sale is quite well known. And this year they had it in the Old Boucler building, which is uh, located in the Avalon Mall parking lot. Yeah. So lots of parking there. It's situated directly next to um, the Chinese food restaurant there. Oh, my goodness. Golden Phoenix. Uh, I'm drawing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's already been a really busy morning. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be there on um, Friday, June 9th from noon to um, 8 p.m. collecting book donations. Also, we could use a few more vendors. So if anybody's listening who's a local craftsperson uh, or farmer who wants a table, we're not uh, accepting direct sales and a wave on or that kind of thing. But 
anybody who has local stuff. Um, samples are $75 if they want to come rent with us. Well, uh, the, the last book sale was a roaring success. Yeah, and how heartening was it, hey, to see that there's still a lot of interest in books. <laughs> I, th- I thought that was great. Um, I went to the, well, I, I didn't make it to the one at the, um, you know, the library because they had one as well. But, yeah, I did make it to the the university one, and uh, it was fantastic. I mean, people were literally lined up around the, the corner of the building. I've got someone yeah. here who just sent me a note, say they have a ton of books to donate. So why don't you one more time give them the option, I think it's the 9th of June, uh, that they yeah, can go to so the Eau Claire building. Yeah, the sale itself is June 10th, yep. which is a Saturday from 10 to 4. Um, and you can, we're just about to post on our website, but all the details are on our, our Facebook um pages we have both a group and a page so having the creatures and the drop off so again um you know we're a local nonprofit. we rescue animals don't get any government funding desperate for your book donations and the drop off is friday june 9th from noon to 8 p.m um in uh, the old Claire building which is right next to the golden phoenix in the avalon mall parking lot but the sale itself is inside because i know there's been some confusion about that when i say avalon mall parking lot people think we're going to be set up in the parking lot no the sale is inside but the building is located in the avalon mall parking lot Okay, and so you say it's on your website, all the information? I'm just trying to respond. We're, we're about to post it on the site. It's not there yet, but it's um, we have a Facebook event group for it. I think it's been on Twitter as well. And um, we have both a group and a page on Facebook, so it's all over there, and we should have it on the website uh, by the end of the day. Well, it looks like you got and a ton of... And the website is heaven Terrific. It looks like you got a ton of books coming from one listener, so that's a good start. I appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Jessica. Yes, thanks, Patty. Take Bye. care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, so there you go. You have some books you'd like to donate. You know what to do. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Gail, you're on the air. Hi, Gail. Line number one, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I called last week about... (coughs) Uh, I'm denied access to see my granddaughter. Um, <clears throat> I live in Presenter Junction, so my 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 phones don't always work. And I got a message back from the OCM, but it went into my message manager. And when I went into that, it just was dead air because it, there could have been a cloud pass by. It doesn't matter. My phone just goes, and that's it. So I was wondering if you found out anything more about um, uh, getting some access. To, uh, you you were talking about a a set of grandparents that wanted to see their granddaughter too, and you were going to see if they wanted to contact me. Which I did. They didn't respond, uh, which I took to believe that they didn't want their names included or they didn't want to talk about their own situation uh, publicly. So I'll, right. I'll send them another follow-up now because who knows, they could be gone to Florida for all I know. But yeah. I, I will see if they will respond to this follow-up note. I didn't call you back, so I don't know what that voicemail would have been. Uh, I don't know if Dave called you or someone called from the newsroom or something like that. I don't know, but I'll find out. Okay. One more thing I'd like to say. I went to the lawyer who's been looking after me since this all started. Mm -hmm. And I would like to say that, can, can I mention his name? 
Uh, if you want, sure. Yeah, his name is Randy Wellen. Okay. And he is the best man in the world. He did everything he could do for me. He did everything. So I called him and asked him if I could have my files. And I was expecting a half a dozen pages, you know, like you would. And when I went and he gave me my files on my granddaughter alone, it's three inches thick. So she got a lot of reading material to do when she gets older. He gave me everything. He's an excellent man to deal with. Well, I'm sure he appreciates those kind words. And I will follow up with that couple who had contacted me about a very similar situation. And I'll find out who called you and what information they were trying to share with you because I don't know. All I know is it wasn't me. Okay, could you just one more thing? Okay. If there's a group or anything that I don't know about that maybe I could join or, or anything like that. Yeah, I should be able to find out stuff. You know, I don't know how specific these groups will be about things like being denied access to uh, your grandchildren, but I can see what's what's out there. I can I can look around, and of course, if any listener knows about these types of support groups, if it's very specific to this issue, or it's just grandparents' general uh, concerns that may be shared in the community, if they tell me, we will absolutely get back to you, Gail, because I don't know what one off the top of my head, but I'm sure we can find something. That would be great. Okay, and I wish you good luck. Let, let us find out, one, who called you and what information they were trying to share. I'll fo- send the follow-up email, and if anyone can t- fill me in about a support group that may indeed be helpful to Gail, we will follow up with that as well. That would be wonderful. I appreciate your time. I wish you good luck. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Gail. Take care. Okay, Thanks. bye-bye. Uh, sad, I mean... You never know what goes inside, goes on inside a family, extended or otherwise, but not being able to see the grandkids. And I, re- I do recall what she was talking about, of course, but uh, it's terrible. Uh, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Leo Bonnell. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank well, you for the invitation to call into your uh, program to have a conversation that might help uh, raise the profile of frauds and scams uh, in our province. Well, first off, I appreciate you to uh, let me know about what's going on with the Clarenville Lions Club. They hosted what they call a lunch and learn session about frauds and scams for <laughs> seniors in the region. You know, for me, so many people probably hear this conversation, roll their eyes, look, we all know the scammers are out there. But the unfortunate reality is that Canadians are separated from tens of millions of dollars every single year at the hands of a fraudster or a scammer. So talking about it, I think, is helpful. Even if one person is brought to a better understanding of what's happening and shields themselves from getting scammed, that's helpful, and we should do it. Yes, excellent. There was an excellent turnout yesterday in Clarenville, and uh, there's a big shout-out to the Clarenville Lions Club as well as uh, Compassion Home Care, who uh, sponsored the event. Uh, great turnout, uh, great participation, uh, great engagement uh, of seniors uh, who uh, themselves had a lot of stories to share about uh, uh, being scammed and, and, and the risks uh, they run every single day. And uh, as we all know, the, uh, the, the telephone calls, the emails, text messages, they're just unrelenting every single day. So as you say, awareness and education is 
is uh, is the best defense uh, to deal with this issue and to, to help people stay up to date on the latest scams because they are evolving and uh, there's almost a new one every single day. That there is. And just for context, uh, we're speaking with Leo Bonnell. He's a former bank manager. You were the past chair of the Advisory Council on Aging and Seniors, NL, advocate for seniors at the community, provincial, and national level. So, Leo, we've talked about the variety of scams that are, that are out there, and they're becoming quite clever. They have figured out how to mine for your personal information and to use it against you. The emails look very professional and real. So what are some of the key tips that you're offering? Uh, actually, let me first say this. It was offered for seniors, and I've always tried to be careful to not imply that only seniors are vulnerable, but they might be more vulnerable because tugging at their heartstrings or they don't want to get in trouble. And it sounds like their grandson, Johnny, on the other end, and they're willing yeah. to do anything for Johnny. So what are some of the key tips here that you're offering? Well, really, it certainly is all about sharing information. And some of these sessions I've done around the province sort of thing with seniors clubs and uh, church organizations, my key focus is, you know, is to how to deal with uh, some of these calls and some of these emails. Certainly, uh, you know, do not share information with unknown parties. And, you know, it's a social media piece. There's way too much information being shared on uh, Facebook. I mean, anybody with an online uh, presence uh, uh, really runs the risk of, uh, of, of scammers. And, uh, you know, these scammers, they're, 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 they're an organized group. There is a criminal organization. So I keep saying to people, you know, do not share information with unknown parties. And things like the bank will not call you for information. The bank already got your information. You know, if you get these calls, hang up. Don't get into a conversation with unknown callers, you know. Don't respond. Do not respond to suspicious email offers. There's too many people that really get caught. As you said, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the scammers are very clever. They're smart people. They, 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 a lot of seniors, of course, really don't, can't distinguish between what is real and, not, and, and fake. So, I'm suggesting to people just be very cautious about uh, you know don't hang don't uh, don't respond to these offers uh, you know getting into the the financial side you know change your passwords uh, often on your bank account and certainly never your date of birth and you know the the sessions that I've held around the province you know there's so many stories that comes out every single day and every every single time we have a session you know how people got caught because you know they did didn't prepare themselves properly sort of thing. So changing your bank, your passwords on your bank accounts and any other online accounts, uh, have alerts set up on your bank account. Uh, the banks, all financial institutions encourages this. So if there's an activity in your bank account, uh, um, you know, there'll be an alert come in by way of an attack or, uh, or, or an email, you know, never buy gift cards for, um, you know, for unknown parties or carry out e-transfer at the request of, of other people. But it is interesting as, as, as we talk to people, you wonder why older people are targeted uh, more frequently. And, and there's not always older people, but there is that perception by the scammers that uh, older people have plenty of money. And they're usually at home more often than others, and they're alone. They may feel lonely. They might be isolated. Uh, and you know, in our even in our Newfoundland society, we're overly trusting of people, 
and that sometimes is a real opportunity for scammers you know these uh, and they may you know the the victims may very well have uh, health issues mobility issues uh, which the fraudster really plays off these vulnerabilities uh, just to gain personal uh, information and uh, get at their financial resources you know the grandparent scam has proven to be yep. very effective there was yep. a fellow arrested at st john's international airport who had yep. uh, conducted some of these scams and had a couple of hundred thousand dollars to show for it so this one here like grandparents would be naturally proud of their grandchildren and posting their names and accomplishments maybe on their facebook page or somewhere on social media and so this one here is really uh, you know it's pretty dastardly stuff so someone would call and say man it's john I'm in Toronto. I got in trouble. I got a lawyer. Da, 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 da. So, you know, unless here's one of the suggestions that I've made is you've got to come up with some key words that you will exchange with your grandchildren or anyone else around you that if they don't know that key word, that it's a it's a fake. So, yeah, yeah I think that'd be helpful. You know, if somewhere yeah. in, this, in the conversation, you've got to mix in something that is totally out of whack, like, uh, Nan, I'm in trouble. It's John. I'm in Toronto. And, you know, I love spaghetti or something silly that the scammer doesn't know that will give Nan or pop that. OK, I'm absolutely talking to my grandchild. Yeah, absolutely. And these are some of the tips that I do give, you know, as as uh, as you you know, what's the name of our dog? Sure. Or where's our cabin? Uh, you know, things that the scammer would not necessarily know because romance scams and grandparenting scams, they're the two that has seemed to have rid risen right to the top. Yeah, because they're emotional. Yeah, absolutely. And I say that this fraud is the probably number one crime that is uh, perpetrated against older uh, older people in this uh, in this uh, century. And we've got to keep talking about because even if we spare one, two, or a half dozen folks, you've done yeoman service. And I appreciate you doing what you're doing, Leo, and thanks yeah. for your time this morning. Yeah, well, I really want to say that, you know, bringing people together for education and learning can be a, certainly a major contribution to help reduce the number of incidents. And, uh, you know, I don't think you'll ever get uh, fixed the, the problem entirely, but certainly knowledge is powerful, and spreading that awareness is certainly key, and that's what I'm trying to do. Good on you, Thanks Leo. for your time, Patty. Pleasure. Stay in touch. Take care. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, well, as a matter of fact, today is World Hypertension Day. The president of Hypertension Canada is Dr. Ross Tsuki. He joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As mentioned, today is World Hypertension Day, and joining us on line number six is the president of Hypertension Canada. That's Dr. Ross Tsuki. Good morning, Dr. Tsuki. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. How was that pronunciation? close that was that was better than i can do it <laughs> i appreciate the kind words before we get into hypertension and the risk factors and uh, associated with high blood pressure tell us about the work you're doing with dr tiffany lee who's an assistant professor right here at Munn school of pharmacy yeah absolutely uh so um in fact i believe we spoke on this day last year uh um i've been collaborating with uh with dr lee uh she's very interested in hypertension she's got a good team uh set up at uh at memorial university and uh we are working together to get people's blood pressure measured and our idea that I, th I think is a bit unique is that you know pharmacies are accessible and so what a great way to get people in to have their blood pressure measured I actually uh, had some blood uh, blood work done not so long ago and the pharmacy right where that clinic is has a big sign out front get your blood pressure tested here 
Yeah, great. And, and you know, that's that's actually what we want to see. What is kind of unique about what we're doing is we're collaborating with a, a big organization called May Measurement or May Measure Month, and uh, uh, there are 90 countries that are participating in this today, and. One of the things that we're doing that's a bit different is that we're the only country that's checking blood pressures in pharmacies. Interesting. Yeah. How accurate yeah, would, and I, would they use a collar just like I would if I went to my doctor's office, or is it just one of those sit in a chair, put your hand down, and they take some sort of measurement? How accurate do we think some of these uh, uh, tactics are? Yeah. You touch on a really important subject is 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 measuring it properly, and that's actually one of the themes of this year is accurate measurement. So one of the interesting things about blood pressure devices is that you can actually go out into your garage and build one and sell it, and it doesn't have to be accurate. That's one of the things that we're doing at Hypertension Canada to to try to to uh, uh, encourage companies to to you know to actually test uh, their machines. So we only use machines that have been we call it validated. That means tested for accuracy, and um, that's a, that's a program that we have uh, put together at Hypertension Canada. So in our case. We don't allow a pharmacy to participate unless they have a proper blood pressure device. And in fact, what we're doing uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, for this day is we've actually provided them the, the machines. How can I find out on the packaging? Because I can go to a, a drugstore and see an over-the-counter sale of a blood pressure monitor. Some are very uh, basic. Some have additional bells and whistles. Is there something on the box that says it's been validated or not? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, um, so at Hypertension Canada, we have a program called the Device Recommendation Program. And what you'll see on the packaging is a check mark in a heart that says, and it'll be either a gold color or a silver color, e either one is fine. And that means it has been looked at uh, by our experts and we recommend it. Uh, interestingly, we just did a study, in fact, we presented it last week. We went to pharmacies, uh, uh, I had a couple of students went to pharmacies and they, they sort of secretly took photos with their phones uh, of all the blood pressure machines that were available. And what we found was that almost all of them, like uh, in some cases 100% or nine out of 10 uh, blood pressure machines sold in pharmacies are recommended by Hypertension Canada. On the other side of things, if you were to go on uh, an online retailer and purchase it, which might be a little bit cheaper, less than half of them are actually recommended devices. And we're kind of worried about those, those devices that haven't been properly uh, tested uh, because you could get results that are quite far off which could be troubling one way or the other. I mean, everyone would love to have 135 over 85, but that's not the case with so many. Uh, another yeah. question. You know, having your blood pressure tested by a triage nurse in the emergency room, when you obviously have some sort of underlying concern, or in a clinical setting with your family doctor, would, you, would it be more likely with a validated machine to get a more accurate reading at home? You know, when you haven't <laughs> consumed alcohol, when you haven't just recently had a cigarette. You know, would it be more likely to have an accurate reading at home with one of these validated machines versus the aforementioned clinical settings? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you know, blood pressure goes up and down during the day, depending on circumstances. And sure, if, you, if you've had some trauma, if you've been in a car accident and your blood pressure is measured in emergency, uh, sure, it's going to be elevated. I mean, there's other reasons that they're, they're measuring it, uh, of course. But you live at home. Uh, your blood pressure is more likely to be uh, your true uh, blood pressure, if I could say that, uh, is your blood pressure at home. And one of the things that we're doing is we're encouraging people to get a properly validated device and measure their blood pressure at home because that's probably the most reflective of what your real blood pressure is. And so the key is not only do you have to have an accurate machine, but you can't just sort of slap that machine on and sit down and run around and be talking. All those things affect blood pressure. It has to be done in a standardized way, which means sitting quietly for five minutes, not talking to anybody else, and you know, not having uh, smoked or had caffeine in, in the previous 30 minutes, and you know, do it in a, in a standardized uh, format. The other thing that's important, too, is that the cuff has to fit properly, and you can see on the packaging of the blood pressure machine uh, the arm size that that fits, and you can usually see it on the cuff of the blood pressure machine as well. They usually have markers to say whether whether the cuff fits or not. Yeah, the the size that Hulk Hogan will wear would be different than the one I might wear. So, and also you have so to, what? you know, <laughs> exactly right. You know, and sit somewhere with a solid foundation, like a kitchen table, put your forearm rested in full, don't clench your fist, don't let it dangle down by your side so you can get a, a miraculous reading. And unfortunately, I know a bit about this because I'm dealing with this with my doctor at this current moment in time. And, and this, now that I've got that out of the way, and this is not to be preachy, but in this province, some of the contributing factors, like you can't do much about family history or genetics, but when we talk about sedentary lifestyle, obesity, diet, alcohol, tobacco, the prevalence of diabetes, give us an understanding what it looks like in this province and some of the risks associated with what I would imagine is a significant amount of hypertension in Newfoundland and Labrador. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, honestly, th this is the reason why we're focusing on Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, that and having a good colleague uh, there, a good set of colleagues uh, there that are interested in this, because uh, Newfoundland and Labrador have higher rates of high blood pressure than the rest of the country. And uh, so, it, you know, the rest of the country is about one in four people have high blood pressure. Newfoundland and Labrador is closer to one in three. Uh, you know, that's a lot of people, and it's a major contributor to heart disease and stroke. Uh, so absolutely, uh, if, if the, the things that you listed off, uh, diabetes, being overweight, uh, sedentary lifestyle, uh, excessive salt intake, uh, you know, those are the things that drive up blood pressure. And uh, so the first step is knowing what that blood pressure is uh, because I can't look at you uh, and say, yeah, I think your blood pressure is elevated. You know, it just doesn't work that way. You can't tell yourself because, as you know, high blood pressure doesn't really cause any symptoms. So the only way to know is to have it measured and have it measured properly. I appreciate the time this morning, doctor. Anything else you'd like to add? 
Well, I would say go out and get your blood pressure measured. Uh, you know, we have uh, about 30 pharmacies participating uh, in this. And if you want to get your blood pressure checked uh, today, checked properly, uh, then, you know, uh, you can go to one of these pharmacies. If you want to see which pharmacies are participating, it's leelab.ca, uh, L-E-E-L-A-B. .ca, and uh, there's a list if you scroll down to see which pharmacies are participating. Get your blood pressure measured. Uh, actually, I was going to let you go, but a couple of very quick questions. So ideally, 135 over 85. At what point do you need pharmaceutical intervention, you know, as opposed to curb your diet a little bit, be a bit more active, cut down on the alcohol and the smokes, what have you? So where is the number that all of a sudden you have to be actually really worried about your blood pressure? Well... To, to simplify things, we usually say anything above 140 over 90 is where we start to be concerned. And we always start with, uh, you know, weight loss, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of dietary advice, uh, uh, you know, getting more active, and that'll bring the blood pressure down several points by itself. But, you know, that's very hard to do, and uh, so we give it a try, and, but quite frequently we need to add medications, and, uh, and so for most people, we would like to see that blood pressure less than 140 and less than 90 uh, for the bottom number, and, and so you, you do what you have to do uh, to get that blood, those blood pressure numbers uh, down because, you know, that's going to be... Um, what is going to help prevent strokes and heart attacks. Uh, and I know they're not the numerator and the denominator, but what do the top and bottom numbers mean? So the top number, which we call the systolic blood pressure, is when the heart first squeezes the blood out. That's the high pressure that comes out uh, uh, from the heart. And then when the heart is resting and filling again, the bottom number is the residual pressure, which we call the diastolic uh, blood pressure. So there's, if you think of the, the pump, there's, uh, there's you know, the first squeeze of the heart and you get the, this pressure, let's say 140, and then as it's loading up to, to squeeze again, the, the pressure falls, and that would be the 90 in that case. Both numbers are important, but typically the one that we look at most closely is that top number, the 140 in our example. Appreciate your time, doctor. Thank you. Thanks very much. Take you, care. You too. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Ross Bye. Suzuki. From the, he's the president of the Hypertension Canada. He's also a professor at the University of Alberta. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. John, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Go right ahead, sir. You're on the air. Yeah. Uh, Patty, uh, just a shout-out to you on VOCM. Uh, you are a great person. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I think so, sir. I don't know if the rest of the world thinks, but you are. You help a lot of people, and uh, I just called to say, hey, I, I take take you with you to wherever I am, and um, sometimes it's some parts of the world. And I really love listening to you, and uh, you have a lot of knowledge, 
and you help a lot of people. And thank you for that, sir. I really appreciate the kind words, John. And as I, I admit freely, I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I'm not trying to be. If you're trying to please everyone, you'll please no one. So some people like it, some people don't. As long as they listen and contribute to the conversation, that works for me. But I do appreciate uh, your thoughts on the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, Patty, and uh, believe me, I've never uh, seen somebody with as much knowledge as you. So, shout out to you, sir. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate your time this morning, John. Thank you, sir. Okay, take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Yes, and of course, look. Some people like it, some people don't, and that's fine by me. It really, truly is. Uh, if you're tuned in and you want to contribute to the conversation alive on the air via email or social media or what have you, that works for me too, but thanks for that, John. Let's go to line number four. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and listening to the audience. Morning. I, I concur with uh, your caller, John. I see that you kept down. <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. What's on your, sm- your mind this morning? Thank you for taking my call, Patty. I, I know I brought up the Ode to Newfoundland uh, last week, yep. uh, which is not going to be, I understand, um, uh, 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 sang at the uh, Memorial Convocation this year. Now, I've been trying to get in touch with the vice president or the president of MUN, Dr. Neil Boss. I understand he's also the uh, chairman of the Board of Regents. And I also tried to get in touch with Dr. Ian Sutherland, who was also vice president of uh, the uh, uh, Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook. Now, I understand there's going to be the... uh, um, uh, convocation in Cornwall will be tomorrow. So up to this point, from my from what I can read and what I hear, uh, when I understand uh, the order is not going to be uh, saying at the convocation again this year. And I think I read in the paper that it was on pause. Now, so my my view now, if I were if I were going to graduate tomorrow from Mono Cornwall, I think I would boycott my 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 graduation. And, and, and respect for for, for the, the veterans uh, who fought in the first and second world war. But why are we associating the order with the veterans? I mean, I think removing it is an unnecessary mistake. You know, we should be adding to it for trying to include more people, because the order really has nothing to do with the veterans. I mean, it was written in 1903. So uh, but, oh, yeah, but the university was built in the memory of the veterans here in Newfoundland. My view is okay if they want this. If they want to inclusion, well, there's nothing, uh, nothing stopping other uh, cultures who attend university to sing their, their order at the convocation. Would that, that would make it fair, wouldn't it? I suppose, but just a couple of things. It and really does happen. Po- the it's other point, Vic. excuse me. The <coughs> other point is that also they don't need to put in a, a, a ad in Labrador because a Labrador has has its anthem also. You know that. I do, the Ode to Labrador, to the melody of O Tenenbaum. I've read it, and I've, right. I've heard it sung many times. I think adding that would be uh, a more helpful decision. And, uh, Doc, right. hold on, Vic, so hold on. Just, okay. hold on. Just a, a couple of points, just so we're accurate here. Dr. Neil Bowes is the interim president and vice chancellor. He's not the chair of the Board of Regents. That's a man named Glenn Barnes, who replaced Iris Petten, who served three terms as the uh, Board of Regents chair, just to get that out there. Okay, the chair. Okay, uh, Dr. Neil Boss is not the chairman of the uh, of the uh, uh, 
Uh, Board of Regents, no, he is. Board of Regents, I'm sorry. No. Okay, I thought Solomon told me that yesterday that he was his chair. No, he's not. It's, it's, in, most ca- in most cases, though, the um, president of the university is the chair of the Board of Regents. No, I don't think I'm it's not, ever. Not, no, not most universities? No, I don't think so. Well, I have to make sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, yes, I did read, yes, Dr. Burns, yes, he's the chair. I apologize for my, no, no one's perfect. The other point uh, now, uh, inclusion. Inclusion can be also, if you really got to look at it, on the opposite way, that can be almost, almost uh, racism, racism in, in reverse, isn't it? How, I'm not sure. i tell you why. Now, I saw an article on, 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 the, uh, on the news, the other, I think it was last week. A University of Toronto has a room did a sort of reserved for black people where they can go in and relax and, and have their some, uh, you know, b- because they feel, I think they were feeling they were certainly isolated or uh, in, in University of Ontario. That was on the news there a few nights ago. So that's really, from my point of view, they're really promoting racism if they have a room prom- uh, provided for the black people only. Am I correct? Not in my own head, but, I mean, I'm sure people will read it like that. You know, it's the same thing if there's a women's uh, only. Well, like I, I, say, I, don't, I, I, I thought you asked me a question, but uh, I'll let I'm you wrap it up before I'm I go. I'm sorry for if I cut you off, uh, but uh, I apologize for that. But like I say, if they want inclusion, then my point of view is this again. They can uh, play their own anthem at, at, at convocation, whatever nationality you are. I've got nothing against nationality because I work with many nationalities in my lifetime. The other point, a question. Uh, the Fisheries Union, I, the FFAW, mm-hmm. uh, do they have a, what we call a strike fund? If you go on strike, you have funds to help your people that are on strike. Yes. They do. Well, I don't know if they pay strike pay like a traditional job action would do, but they absolutely have money. Right, okay. The other question was... Very quickly, uh, because I have to go, Vic. Okay. One more. The other question is, uh, the the plant workers, are they in the same union? Yes, some of them. They are. And I thank you again. I'm sorry if I cut you off. That's okay, I apologize. Vic. Take good care of yourself. Have a nice weekend. You too. Thank Bye-bye. You. you want me to take another one here, Dave? Okay. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the leader of the NDPNL. He's the, Saint, uh, the member, pardon me, for St. John's Center. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. Yes, and just calling up two things. Uh, one, first of all, is uh, just want to promote uh, a constituency day that... Uh, <clears throat> My office is holding down at the Chess Penny Center for, uh, for Hope uh, from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock p.m. So it's there to help with uh, housing, shelter, income support, tax clinics, and any issues that we're facing. We'll have uh, a representative from Open Hands NL as well. They'll be there at help, based an organization that helps uh, people transition into the community who may have been incarcerated, suffering from a de- domestic violence and homelessness. So uh, that's... We're, we're, uh, I, since I've been elected, I've been looking to uh, more or less see if I could establish a, uh, a constituency office in the district. That's proving a little bit more difficult than I thought, so we've opted for these, uh, like, <clears throat> maybe monthly uh, constituency day or constituency, uh, like, workshop, if you will, uh, in, in, the, uh, in different areas of the district. Um, so that people have that access. Uh, I, my office is here at the NL, at the Confederation Building, but for many people that's just as well. I've, I'm out in, in central Newfoundland, so uh, we figured uh, this is a way of uh, reaching out to constituents at the ground level. 
And I just want to push that today that anyone who has uh, an issue that needs to speak to me, I'll be there, or my constituency assistant and uh, some other people from our office or from uh, help Open Hands NL, uh, we'll be there from 1 to 4 and see how it goes. Sounds good. I know it's not directly related, but uh, any thoughts on what we heard from Ottawa yesterday regarding bail reform? Because I guess it does have a, po- a portion of overlap. It... It, it and that that those will be the issues as well. I mean, in terms of well, you look at anyone transitioning from uh, you know from an institution, whether it's uh, in uh, prison, uh, um, long-term institutionalization, there are, there are significant challenges. Or so that that you know anything that's going to be ref- that's going to make this uh, well, safe, well, two things: safer for the people who are out in, who are in the community and uh, fair to the people who are seeking bail I think it's a it's a positive thing yeah quick shout out for the uh, reintegration after being institutionalized shout out to my buddy Danny McGettigan at Turnings yes. and Cindy and her team at John Howard Society because they do important work they do and I've uh, spoken to Dan McGettigan and also the former president of the NLTA uh, Kevin Foley who works there as well but yep. they uh, it's it's tremendous work and and Patty often on song too uh, but you know that's uh, at the ground level and uh, probably uh, does a valuable work in uh, making sure that people uh, integrate successfully and the and reduce the level of recidivism uh, that that uh, that you know we, we that people might ex- uh, accept. It's not easy to integrate into the uh, you know uh, from an institution to into society where all of a sudden those decisions are left up to you. Right. Hundred uh, percent. Anything else you want to talk about, Jim? Before we just go? mention with regards to uh, child care issue, uh, I yeah. think it's clear we've had. I know we've had uh, the minister dismiss uh, previous report is outdated um, and we have a new one now by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives which clearly lays out where Newfoundland is uh, if anything else if, if if government hasn't been listening to the parents who have been in, in the gallery uh, and I'm sure they've got the, they must be uh, they must be receiving calls uh, if, if the if and emails that we've been receiving, I think it, it behooves them now to uh, to start looking at how do we address this. Uh, I know they've got a wage grid. There are issues with regards. Uh, we've had uh, calls from AECEs who you know that the wage grid is is not as good as uh, as government might think. Uh, and it's about uh, I think one of the key recommendations is that basically paying uh, people in the uh, ECEs don't often uh, stay there long very long because the pay is bad and the hours are bad. I think we've also got to look at how we do things diff- uh, differently in the future. I, I do think that in any new school s- construction, I think there should be uh, th- that that should be attached to it. Uh, there should be some uh, some like almost like a cradle to uh, the finish of high school. There are creative ways of doing it, um, and uh, I, I I think it's going to have to start with the fact that the minister and the government is going to realize that announcing ten dollar a day daycare uh, is in and of itself is not the solution. It's got to go one step further and have a plan. I, I, I guess the key, key, number one recommendation from this uh, report yesterday was set clear targets and criteria and uh, and also promote uh, not-for-profit sectors ability to expand as well. Sure. So those are, I, I think there's a clear warning here that uh, it, it's, uh, times have changed when I had my, when my wife and I had, had our first children, we had six month maternity leave and uh, and at that time it was, it was challenging as it is, but you know, 
it's just uh, we've gone uh, there's an increased emphasis on supports for the family this is a key part of it and something that if we want to attract new uh, p- new people to here families to uh, to have their children here then i think we've got to uh, put that investment into them yeah some of this you know there's a rural versus urban yes. conversation here so 80 percent of kids under the age of five in this province do not have access to a yep. child care space they make reference to small towns of rural nl yep. saskatchewan is the only province worse at 92 percent for context PEI and Quebec are the best at 4 and 11% respectively. And regarding the city, the uh, of the 37 cities, I think it was, that were looked at, there's only 5% space for children under the age of 18 months in St. John's. Yeah. So it's not just bad or poor access in rural. It's also the same conversation for toddlers in particular in town. I appreciate this this morning, Jim. Take care. Thank you, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. All right, it's Jim Dean, leader of the NDP and member for St. John's Centre. When we come back, let's go to Port Coral. And we talked about share and sheep, Aunt Martha's or otherwise. Brenda Aylward from Aylward's Farm is next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the manager of Aylward's Farm out in Port Kerwin. That's uh, Brenda Aylward. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the show. I read <laughs> the story with a keen interest today. I'm not even sure why. <laughs> so you talk about the creation of the sheep producers of Newfoundland and Labrador. Back in the early 90s, it had a membership of around 100. Now it's down to about 35. What gives you reason for concern in that drop? Uh, well, there was a lot of uh, reasons for the decline over the years. Um, the panel association was uh, formed, uh, I do believe, in 1990. And at that time, there were a lot of uh, producers in Newfoundland who had sheep. Many or many people had small flocks. Uh, there were some bigger flocks. Then we saw the implementation of laws that prevented livestock from roaming. So that required pasture for sheep to graze. Uh, we also saw um, a lot of people moving out of rural areas in Newfoundland. And I think also there was a reduction for some time in the consumption of lamb as uh, there was more access to supermarkets and big box stores. And, of course, predators were always a concern, um, as they still are, particularly coyotes. So uh, the basing, I guess, in past years has been the lack of pasture um, and lack of, uh, I guess, winter uh, forage for sheep and other livestock here in the province. So as time went on, uh, people were getting out of the sheep industry and members were dropping off that way. So in recent years, we were down to, in the teens, we had 15, 16 members. So that's what we've been trying to do now, turn it around and encourage people to get back into an industry that's uh, starting to become revived. And let's hope there's further revival. Do we happen to know a breakdown between, say, hobby farms versus an operation like out of Boyd Leamington? I don't have a breakdown. I know that the majority of farms uh, on the island have between 25 to 50 sheep. We do have several on the Avalon that have uh, around 100. Uh, there are maybe just a handful on the province uh, in the province that uh, are upwards of uh, you know more than 100 sheep. Uh, that is one of the things that we're looking at this year, and one of the reasons why we kind of wanted to get the word out to people about Spanel. Uh, the Sheep Producers Association of Newfoundland and Labrador because we are aiming to get a more accurate count uh, on how many sheep are actually in the province right now. There are a lot of people who still have little backyard flocks, 
uh, but we don't always know about them. And we would also like to get an idea of the bigger flocks that are out there. Um, it's actually where the sheep industry is booming in Canada right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Ontario and in Western, a lot of younger people are becoming involved. So there is greater access and availability to markets, but we certainly have great potential here in Newfoundland, again, particularly in the last few years. Talk about the operations of a sheep farm, because, you know, it's one thing to have pigs and sows or cattle or what have you. So whether it be input costs or the amount of attention and care sheep need. Uh, <laughs> my sheep get a great deal of care. Uh, they are pretty uh, resilient. Uh, sheep do need a lot of pasture to roaming animals. Uh, they need specific fencing to keep them in and to keep predators out. You do need a smaller block fencing. Um, you also uh, need predator control. I think throughout Newfoundland now, uh, we, we have a, a uptaking coyote population. We definitely need predator controls, be that uh, guardian animals, a specific kind of fencing, electric fencing, um, predator lights, that type of thing. So there are a lot of care in the winter. You're looking at, um, you know, the time to feed in the mornings to make sure everybody is okay you're doing your watering Uh, a lot of farms now roll out the large bales in the morning so there's very little to that lambing is probably the time that uh, you invest the most of your your energy Um, here on Elwood's farm we're checking our sheep maybe every two hours throughout the day and night. Uh, sometimes, you know, you have problems like with any any birthing, and uh, they need some attention and care. You have to be vigilant once you let them out in the spring and the summer. As you know, there are uh, flocks that go out to the islands. If you take good care of your animals throughout the winter and into the spring and they're properly vaccinated and they've got any treatments for deworming or any other parasites, you know, they're resilient on their own. They can go out on the islands, they can go out near pasture, and you just do a check on them every now and then. And then when fall comes, you bring them back home again. I personally bring my sheep down from the pastures at night because of the predators. Do sheep need access to a big animal veterinarian or just the so-called normal veterinarian? Uh, large animal veterinarians, and uh, we have some some wonderful large animal vets here um, in the province and here on the Avalon uh, in particular. I think we all develop a rapport with our veterinarians because mm-hmm. they cover a vast amount of territory, and there are only a few of them at any given time. Yeah, I know we have a shortage there. Uh, So last one, and this is about sharing. I've never shared a sheep. I've milked a cow, but I have seen it in action. And, of course, it's difficult for the animal, possibly, if you don't know what you're doing. Maybe difficult for the person doing it because they possibly know in the back of their mind they don't know know what they're doing. You see it on TV. It looks like child's play, right? You see some Kiwi in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, sharing sheep at a breakneck pace. But what impact has the lack of understanding or ability in sharing meant for the driver? in numbers do you think I think it's a back-breaking task and you're right it does look very easy when you see the professionals do it um, but it's extremely difficult it's time-consuming it can add stress to the animal and here in Newfoundland our climate is not as it is in other provinces so a lot of us share a little later in the year um, the 
people who have sheep at this point, I find a lot of us are getting older and it is back breaking. And for us to share, it can take probably 10, 15, 20 minutes to half an hour to share a sheep, especially if you've got a, a difficult sheep. Uh, so when the ladies came down here uh, this past weekend for our sharing seminar, they uh, they certainly showed us some techniques to help us, and they provided a great service. I think the decline, it's, it's deterring for people to have the face um, sharing. And, of course, the more sheep you have, the harder it is. It can take place over several days. And it's something that has to be done at least once a year for the health and welfare of the animal. So I think having the ability to share properly or to have the service uh, come into the province is uh, is encouraging. We conducted a survey recently, and one of the um, the most talked about topics was the need for sharing techniques and possibly having a sharing service here on the island. That it's uh, it was a deterrent to people getting back into the industry. It's not easy work. So, do you think the uh, workshop uh, gave people a bit more confidence in their sharing ability and the ability to share what they've now found out with others who might be interested? Absolutely. The ladies came down and the the few days they were here was amazing. So we conducted an all-day workshop on Saturday. Um, They demonstrated uh, their technique known as the Bowman Method and they... um, they, a lot of it is in the movement of your body and the handling of your equipment, proper setup of equipment, which they did for all producers who took their equipment along. They set it up properly. They gave them some pointers. That makes the job incredibly more easy. And anyone who wanted the opportunity to try sharing a sheep could do so. They gave some tips and tricks. And as they pointed out, you don't learn to share a sheep in a day. You certainly learn some tips and tricks to make it easier you know, for the next time round. But um, there are uh, opportunities where a person, and we're hoping some of the younger people in attendance might be interested in making this a part-time career. There are tra- uh, sharing schools that they can go to potentially. And it would be wonderful to see someone take interest and maybe want to do this as a part-time business. It would be great for all of us. And the before and after pics of sheep sharing are just fascinating as well. <laughs> uh, listen, good luck at Aylworth Farm. Really appreciate the time this morning. Brenda, enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. Take, Take care. care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. As Brenda Aylward, she's not only uh, the manager at Aylward's Farm, but part of the sheep producers of Newfoundland and Labrador Spannel organization. Let's go ahead and take a break from the newscast. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Say good morning to the Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy at CAA Atlantic, and that's Julia Kent. Good morning, Julia. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So it looks very much like there's going to be a job action, a strike or a lockout of WestJet pilots as early as 3 a.m. on Friday. is just yesterday that WestJet started talking about what they would be able to do for their customers with refunds or aid in rebooking flights or what have you. That seems a little late in the day to me. How about you? Well, I mean, I think we have to stop here and just wait. We don't have a strike on our hands yet, right? So it's still uh, it's still just a possibility. It looks right now like a likely possibility, but we're hearing that both sides um, have made significant progress in negotiations. So hopefully we won't be dealing with that. But what I would urge people uh, to do is to sit tight and not make any drastic actions just yet with their travel plans because we, we really don't know yet if it's going to happen or not. I guess the trick for some would be, you know, sometimes it's purpose travel. It's not just I want to travel for the sake of, as I've got somewhere I have to be. 
So maybe some people forced to reconsider their travel plans at this point. What do you think people should understand about refunds? Because, you know, there's a 30-day window where they're said to come out, but there's also some non-refundable costs that people have probably entertained with their travel plans, whether it be with an Airbnb or otherwise. How should airlines consider those types of issues? Or is that beyond their purview, do you think? Uh, Well, I think that, you know, in every case, of course, there's people that are traveling because they need to travel. And if your travel is already booked with WestJet, I would, like I just said, sit tight and wait and see what happens. Because in best case scenario, you won't have to, nothing will change for you at all. Um, But if you're not, if you haven't yet booked yet, I mean, this is a time when you probably are hearing a lot of uncertainty with WestJet. So probably looking at other airlines. Um, Unfortunately, there's not a lot to choose from in Canada. But uh, looking at other airlines, look at your options, delaying booking travel if you can. Um, of course, we're dealing with the soaring prices of uh, all things related to travel right now. Um, so uh, that's actually contrary to our advice. We normally are telling people to book early. But with this sort of uncertainty, particularly if you're going to Western Canada where WestJet is so active, um, it's probably uh, uh, your best case right now to, to hold off if you can. Um, that being said, uh, you know, talk to your insurance providers. Uh, look into what the airline is offering. That's changing, um, you know, with WestJet as this strike progresses by the minute. Um, and as well, this is another case uh, where it's a really good idea to be working with a, a travel advisor on your travel plans because they can do all this work for you. And there, you won't be left in the dark uh, with so many questions unanswered because the travel advisor will be, will be doing this research on your behalf. I mean, it's always a good idea. Travel insurance has never been more important than it is this day and age. With Mm -hmm. the pricing and what have you, we've got a bit of a problem here. We just don't have much in the way of competition. You know, you can say, well, you can fly Swoop or what have you, but WestJet owns them. So we really only have two carriers, if we're being honest. You can add in the porters of the world and, uh, uh, oh, my God, what's the one that pal into the conversation? You have Swoops, as Dave just said, but that's, of course, WestJet. I mean, WestJet owns Swoop. So, you know, there's an issue regarding the amount of foreign ownership in an airline with the ability to fly domestically in Canada. What changes do do we see coming or do we need to see coming regarding competition because it's just becoming punitive or prohibitive the cost of flight? Well, we're seeing this pretty much in every industry, right? In every, uh, you know, if you want to go to the movies, if you want to buy a pair of sneakers, it's all these big companies owning owning one thing. And, you know, that, that's that's good and bad, but this is one reason why we're so active um, advocating for air passenger rights to make sure that, you know, Canadians are treated uh, fairly uh, when it comes to air travel. And yet, like you said, pricing is crazy across the board. We can talk about car rental prices, hotel prices, pretty much anything related to travel, even if you want to sit down and have a meal in a restaurant, it's different than it was in 2020, uh, in 2019, before the pandemic. Um, so yes, we're dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, increased costs and the lack of competition is a problem, no matter what industry you're looking at. Absolutely. And you know, the passenger bill of rights, the new one that's been tabled, you know, kind of galls me a little bit that they're talking about the importance of this transport minister, Omar Alagbra, saying, well, they've, they've increased the fines to airlines tenfold to the maximum of $250,000. You could make it $250 trillion because the transportation agency didn't find an airline at all last year, just simply dealing with backlog of customer complaints. So I know it doesn't go far enough. The EU model really does seem like the best protection for the air traveling mm-hmm. public. Airlines will 
say it's it goes too far. But I think they missed this point, is if Canadians thought they were better protected with these types of pieces of legislation, they might be more encouraged to fly, which would be good for the airlines. And that just means they have to up their game and be prepared for the traveling public and the pent-up demand. You know, it's fine to uh, have me book a flight, and then I spent the Christmas holidays in Pearson International. So I think the airlines are letting us down on a variety of fronts. Your thoughts? Well, I think that, you know, it's a supply and demand thing right now, right? So everyone before the pandemic had a, you know, certain level of service uh, that they were offering. We can talk about, um, you know, the limited options that you have on the island uh, in Newfoundland. Um, You know, if you want to fly to Halifax, it's 5 a.m. or 5 p.m. And airlines are working, uh, you know, smarter, not harder uh, post-pandemic. So they're offering, they're offering flights. They'll get you out of Newfoundland, but, you know, on their schedule, not yours. Um, And, you know, that's really tricky for regional and rural pathways um, in Canada, particularly in Atlantic Canada. We're seeing reduced flights out of Moncton, uh, St. John, uh, Fredericton, Charlottetown, uh, St. John's, you know, the whole gamut. Um, So it it is really tricky. And uh, you're right. Um, You know, airlines seem to be in the driver's seat right now. And what we really want to do is is see the supply and demand shift back uh, to Canadians having a little bit more control and feeling a little bit more protected when they're uh, choosing their air travel. I think that would put more people in the sky. I really do. Well, I think to your point, I mean, who wants to travel if they're hearing of all these delays and and mistreatments um, people are complaining about? I mean, it's, uh, you know, largely anecdotal, but, you know, some uh, some people are saying, you know, they are spending, you know, their their vacation time in the in the Pearson airport. Um, So, yes, there's there's something that has to be done. And, you know, you are right. The EU model for air passenger rights does seem to be, uh, you know, the gold standard internationally right now. But, you know, there's criticism. Uh, critiques of that model as well. So we need to find a Canadian happy medium, and we've made massive strides in the right direction over the last few years, and I'm really hopeful that we're going to get there uh, even even further. Yeah, they say that whether it be uh, in Vancouver or Trudeau in Montreal or Pearson in Toronto, like Pearson, for instance, hired more people than they've ever had working for them in history, so they hope that they've alleviated the concerns that we saw coming from in the videos and pictures of baggage all over the terminals and people mm-hmm been sleeping in Pearson International for days on end. So let's hope that improves. And let's hope they're able to avert this WestJet issue because that will impact tens of thousands of traveling Canadians immediately. Uh, Anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Julia? Well, I just think that to your point, you know, there's a labor shortage uh, globally, like, you know, Canada wide as well. So, you know, I think that we do have to cut some of these companies some slack because they're trying to do their best amidst, you know, rising prices, um, you know, competition, labor shortages. All these things contribute uh, to what we have is, is a, a pretty messy situation when most Canadians just want to get back to travel. 100%. They're graduating less pilots than ever before. And there's a pilot mm-hmm. shortage. I mean, who would have ever thought there'd be a pilot shortage. That's right. And so I don't think there's going to be scab pilots uh, at uh, WestJet's disposal. And uh, I'm not sure that I'd, uh, I'd, I'd want them anyway. I appreciate your time. Thanks for this, Julia. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. As Julia Kent, she is the Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy at CAA Atlantic. Break time. When we come back, get an update from the good folks at the Corpus Christi Food Bank. Of course, they were losing their space upon the sale of that church. Julie Peddle's in the queue, and then we're talking some Shriners. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Judy Peddle. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm just calling to let you know of the update 
for our food bank. We are unfortunately closing on Friday this week. We haven't found an alternative space, and we have to be out of this space by the end of May. So that just gives us a week or so to uh, get everything moved out of there and phones cut off and the heat heat and light and everything cut off. Terrible update. Uh, I know you had to share it, but I was cautiously optimistic during the break that you're going to tell me you had found a spot so St. Vincent de Paul has been serving folks in the region for quite a long time had the space oh, 30 for years 30 years yeah I mean had the space for free uh, there are Corpus Christi and it's just one of those ripple effect issues with the churches being sold and church properties being sold so now folks in the area without the food bank without St. Vincent de Paul they were making public pleas for a space either very cheap or free for 1100 square feet to 1,500 square feet, and now no one was able to come up with it, so this is a, this is a real blow to folks in the region. Well, yeah, well, we have to close on Friday in order to give us time to get everything out by the end of the month. And unfortunately, it's not much notice to our clients that come to us, but they'll get the message on the phone machine, and there'll be a message on the door that this place has to close by Friday. Give us an estimate about how many individuals you were serving. Uh, upwards of 200 and sometimes over a month. And their next closest option is pretty far afield. Well, their next options are whatever food banks are around in the area that will take them in for now anyway. On we're still hoping that something may come up, but we have to. We don't have anywhere to move to, so we have to look at moving our stuff out of that building. Sorry to hear this, and of course, other food banks. Their concern would be they're they're having a hard time keeping up with the demand that they currently have, let alone an additional couple of hundred a month. So, hopefully, just hopefully, the donations that were coming into St. Vincent de Paul move off to whether it be Bridges to Hope or whatever the case may be, because they were struggling with demand already, and this is not going to help. Yeah, um, our donations kind of disappeared when the church shut down. Most of our money came from parishioners, mm-hmm. but we've been able to, you know, get through. And we do have, you know, enough money to carry on if we can come up with some space. But if that doesn't happen in the next few months, we won't have an option at all, and it is shut down permanently. I appreciate that. We're, we're still open to having someone come up with space for us. Okay. Um, government had indicated that they would find somewhere but that hasn't happened and i haven't had a response from any of the people i sent emails out to looking for help and advising them of the situation so right now this is the only option we have we had a meeting yesterday with all of our volunteers because we are a volunteer-based organization and I'm sure they were as disappointed as the folks you serve and you yourself. Julia, appreciate the update. Let us know when anything changes or anything we can do. I sure will. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So as of Friday, things will be cut off. That's St. Vincent de Paul at Corpus Christi. Let's go to line three. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? Good. Good. I'm calling to um, uh, let you know that the Gander Shrine Club, Shriners, 
uh, are having a takeout flipper dinner today, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and we have a few tickets left. So um, if I can give a number, anyone can call and pick up a ticket and have a wonderful flipper dinner this evening. Absolutely. What time is the pickup and what number do they have to call to order? Any time after 4 o'clock. And uh, they can call 709-256-8618. Everyone loves the, well, not everyone. People do enjoy a flipper dinner. Are you usually successful with it? Yes, this is annual. Some years we've had two in one year, and uh, they're pretty well always a sellout. But it's a little more difficult now to uh, let people know that we're having it. We don't have our, our local newspaper and our local radio station, so we have to uh, use other means. And you've been helpful in promoting this ride in the past. Oh, happy to do it. You know, same thing when Bill Tizard calls up at the Legion and what have you. Just getting the word out, I think, is helpful for your organization, helpful for the folks who like to feed the flipper this evening. Uh, very quickly, how, what's the status look like for keeping the numbers of Shriners up? Because I know a lot of these service groups, maybe the age of the members is growing and maybe not being backfilled. How about Shriners? Uh, same thing. Um, we've um, our numbers have decreased significantly, but uh, there there have been some younger people joining recently, and um, that's encouraging. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Just and very briefly before I have to go, Jeff. So people, when they think Shriners, they think about the Shriners Children Hospitals in particular. What other things are key focus areas where the Shriners try to make support? Um, not a broad service club. Uh, we do uh, we do have an, an arrangement with the Lions Club and the local co-op store where, where uh, we have a 50-50 draw here at the store and um, distribute funds uh, uh, to the local hospital and, and uh, as needs other needs arise. But uh, we we still have a number of children from all over the province. Um, and who go to one of our hospitals. There, there are 21 in North America, um, and um, one of the hospitals now is, is more um, uh, specialized toward cleft lip and palate. Of course, we have three burn hospitals and a brand-new hospital in, um, in Montreal. So um, we're, we're quite active, and, and the biggest part of our fundraising uh, goes to uh, travel because our, uh, our patients sometimes have to go to the uh, hospital right from the get-go, and they're accompanied by um, a parent or a guardian, and everything is uh, paid for completely from the time they um, leave their home. They um, till the time they return, and and of course uh, the hospitals and the hospital services are uh, are open to any race or religion. Anybody's welcome. Jeff, to become a Shriner, do you have to go through different stages? Like, do I have to be a member of a Masonic Lodge first, and then graduates into like the Scottish Rite or what have you? <laughs> yeah, you do. You used to also have to be a member of Scottish Rite, which is a branch of Freemasonry. Yeah. But every Shriner is a Freemason, but not every Freemason is a Shriner. <laughs> right. Okay. We, so. we we call it the uh, the fun and philanthropic branch of Freemasonry. So the Scottish Rite or the York Rite? 
Yeah, that that those are two other branches. Yeah. They're, they're parallel, but they're more for information. It's not a prerequisite now to be a, a, a member of Scottish Rite or York Rite in order to join the shrine, which used to be the case. That's interesting. Jeff, uh, the uh, number one more time if people would like to get in on the action and get a flipper dinner yeah, tonight. And, and there's a few left, and uh, 4 o'clock this evening, 256 8618. Guaranteed good feed. Um, some of our are from the New West Valley area and they know their flippers. Terrific. Appreciate this. Good luck with it. And thank you. My pleasure, Jeff. All the best. Bye bye. There you go. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, we talked about the legislation tabled by Minister of Justice David Lametti yesterday regarding bail reform. We'll talk about that after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number four. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Doing great, thanks. Good. Wanted to uh, just make some comments on the proposed revamp or additions to the bail legislation proposed by the federal government yesterday sure you know one of, one of the things I find uh, interesting about this is the expansion of the uh, criteria for a reverse onus for bail provision uh, it's not only for people who've been convicted of, uh, who repeat offenders people who've been convicted uh, of criminal offenses multiple times but it's also now um, people who've been given uh, discharges for intermittent partner violence. So a, a discharge, either an absolute discharge or a conditional discharge, is where the court finds you guilty of a of a criminal offence, or you plead guilty, and the judge, instead of uh, convicting you, uh, grants you a discharge. So the the finding of guilt is registered, but you're not convicted, and you are, are deemed to not have a criminal record. Sure, but there was a conviction. So the technicality point two is absolutely real, but we do know the issues regarding bail and intimate partner violence and the escalation thereof when there's an accusation made, especially when there's a conviction achieved. So I have personally no problem with it. For the serious crime stuff, it's a bit wordy, but here you go. So... If regarding reverse onus, if you've been charged with a serious violent offense involving a weapon, one with a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment, who were convicted of a similar offense within the last five years, you will face the reverse onus, which basically means the prosecutor doesn't have to say why he should remain behind bars. The uh, accused has to convince the court of why they should be released. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, there are many uh, provisions uh, in the in the criminal law whereby an accused has to prove something uh, where there's a persuasive burden on an accused to uh, uh, for bail for example uh, if you're uh, if you were charged with murder and, and there are other offenses but if you were charged with murder and even if you had no prior criminal record for anything um, there's a reverse onus provision for that offense so you're going to be held uh, on remand pending uh, pending a bail hearing and at that bail hearing, uh, the onus is on the accused to prove that he should be released. And if you don't prove it, uh, you're going to be held until your trial. You know, so that's one example. And uh, and the courts have found that that is a justifiable infringement on the uh, on the on the charter right to uh, not be denied reasonable bail without just cause. 
So it's, it's a complicated constitutional analysis involving uh, the Oaks test. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, reverse provision will probably hold up. I would imagine it would. I've watched uh, some of uh, Minister Lametti's uh, news conference yesterday. I will admit I found some of it a bit confusing. I mean, to say just the vagaries of the goal of Bill C-48 is improving public safety, yes, well, of course it is. But then to say gives ability to the courts to take into consideration for community safety and accused history of violence when making a bail decision kind of feels to me, uh, with all due respect, Minister Lametti, that that's already in place. Yeah, I think a lot of this is just optics, too, and perception, you know? Uh, a lot of politics uh, is not really about what is, what's actually happening on the street, what's actually happening on the front lines in the criminal justice system, in our provincial courts and our superior courts and, uh, you know, our appellate courts. It's uh, it's about politics, a lot of it, and it's about uh, perception and about not doing – not necessarily um, um, – addressing uh, problems or being seen to address problems uh, and and uh, floating trial balloons and things like that, you know. Uh, I think a lot of this is, is just driven by knee-jerk politics. Uh, you know, we've had a few uh, high-profile media cases over the last year or so uh, involving the, the shooting of a police officer uh, in Ontario, for example, and it, the media uh, got... Uh, got a hold of some information about the accused alleged uh, prior criminal record and court record. And, of course, this makes uh, front-page news. And uh, it's a very tragic case, obviously. That police officer dies in the, in, in, uh, in the line of duty. But, uh, you know, it's, it seems to me a lot of this is just quick fixes that, uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a problem because uh, there's been a couple of cases uh, high profile that that have been in the media across the country of of some problem, so therefore we have to bring in some legislation that uh, that is seen to address the problem and doesn't necessarily address the problem. Because what's going to happen now? You're going to get a lot more people being held on remand pending the outcome of their of their case, whether they end up going to trial and being convicted or acquitted, or they plead guilty or whatever the case may be. But you're going to have more people on remand, and there's already enough people on remand. There's, I think uh, 60, 65% of people in in, uh, uh, in remand across the country are uh, just charged with an offence. You're not convicted of anything. Yeah, and, I, uh, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I don't think there's, the changes are necessarily bad in any form. I mean, I think there's a conversation as to whether or not they went far enough in some corners. But to bolster your point, so the high-profile case you talk about is Randall McKenzie. He killed an, an OPP officer. He was out. He was on trial for assault and weapons charges. There was a warrant for his arrest, and at that same time, he killed the cop. So that grabbed the headlines. But to put your, uh, your point a little further down the road, the justice minister was unable to offer any data about how frequently someone on bail commits a crime, serious or otherwise. So good data makes for good policy. And if it's not available here, then I think you're 100% right. This is a, uh, an exercise in optics. It's an exercise in politics. That doesn't always necessarily make it a bad thing, but we really should have data to really drive these decisions because, as I say many times, good data equals good policy, or at least it gives it a better shot at good policy. One exemption here that I think deserves conversation, I don't think you or I are perfectly positioned to talk about it, but I'll just put it out there for a general conversation. And this is regarding the circumstances of the Aboriginal accused. Aboriginals represent some 20 27% of the total offender population in Canada. So 
Here's the question I would have, and I absolutely cannot answer it, is I wonder what the Aboriginal community thinks. Because would they be of the same mind as many Canadians that if you've been charged with a violent offence, you pose a danger to the public, regardless of your status as an Indigenous person or otherwise, if public safety is the goal of this bill, then those types of exemptions also feel very much like politics versus public safety. Yeah, it, 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 it gives you the appearance again, as I said earlier, of, you know, you're appearing to do something. Um, good data makes for good policy, as you just said, but there's a corollary to that, too. It's uh, hard cases make for, uh, 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 bad cases make for bad law, you know. And uh, again, it goes back to the knee-jerk reaction that uh, we must be seen to be doing something instead of actually doing something. And it's not just the Liberals. I mean, I, I, I listened to uh, Mr. Polyev. Uh, and the Conservatives, the official opposition, they want to form the next government. Uh, he's the prime minister in waiting. And uh, his position on this is that the Liberals didn't go far enough, that there should be no bail, period, for yeah. repeat offenders. I, I mean, you know, that just flies in, in contravention of established Supreme Court precedents uh, throughout this, in this country, uh, in a myriad of cases uh, where, where bail was the, was the issue and, or judicial interim release. That the presumption of innocence is intertwined with the uh, the right to uh, to right to bail. Those two charter rights are, are, are intertwined. You cannot just distill them uh, and, and look at them in isolation. They have to be looked at together in any consideration of judicial interim release. Mr. Polyev and uh, his party and and their policy uh, is directly. Uh, in contravention of established Supreme Court precedent. Most recently, the 2017 case, uh, Regina versus Antic. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, the political rhetoric that absolutely has no chance to go anywhere, but many people will be nodding along and saying, absolutely. Uh, anyway, uh, I suppose we have to leave it at that. Just in a very short order, the issue regarding the Chief Justice's letter to the Prime Minister last week about the federal court vacancies and what that means for, in particular, the Jordan ruling. Because if they're picking and choosing and putting a hierarchy attached to which case is going to be heard based on the shortage of federal judges and the government dragging their feet and making these appointments, the government will say, hey, we've made 500 appointments since 2015. But the Chief Justice, who would know much more than any elected official, is saying the vacancies are causing a huge problem. We will see civil and criminal charges go by the wayside because of the shortage of federal judges. This is a problem. Absolutely. It goes to what I just said at the beginning of our discussion, is that, the, you know, uh, they want to be seen to be doing something. It's about optics. But let's let's talk to the people who are on the front lines, right? Let's talk to the judges and the justices of the peace and the criminal uh, and members of the criminal offense bar and the crown attorneys and the police officers and the, and the probation officers and everybody who's working in the criminal justice system. Let's ask them what the problems are. Let's ask them how to remedy this. And, and that makes for good policy. It's not just, as I said earlier, knee-jerk reaction. You know, uh, the, the, this liberal government, in my opinion, and by the way, I am a liberal, so, you know, I'm putting the boots to my own tribe here. That they're after doing this seven or, uh, several times over the last seven or eight years that they've been in power. Uh, a notable um, example of that was the Gomeshi case. You know, he got acquitted. A lot of people didn't like that. So the federal government decides, well, we can't have that anymore. We're... Uh, Three complainants get surprised by the criminal defense lawyer at trial with uh, contradictory evidence and get caught lying. So we can't have that. So what we'll have now, when somebody's charged with sexual assault, we'll bring in new legislation that, uh, you know, if you want to introduce uh, um, part communications and records that you have, 
uh, emails, texts, handwritten letters from the complainant, and you want to use that in your defense, well, you've got to jump through evidentiary and procedural hoops to get that into evidence. Otherwise, it's not going to be admitted. You know what I mean? I do. And I wish we had more time, but final break of the morning is upon us. Uh, thanks for this. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, last bit of time, up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, it happens uh, all the time, to be honest, where... Someone thinks they heard something I said one way or another when, in fact, that wasn't the case. And on this front, it was someone complaining via email that I was saying that there should be no such thing as an exemption or a consideration for bail when we consider the circumstances of the Aboriginal accused. What I said, quite clearly, was that I'm not position to speak to with any authority. What I offered as a question is I wonder what the Aboriginal community themselves thought. Because if indeed we're talking about public safety, do the Aboriginal communities across the country think that in their best interest for their safety, that there's not a whole lot of consideration based on the fact that someone's simply Aboriginal, but on the fact that he or she might be dangerous? That's a question that I'm asking of Aboriginals, not telling them what to think, because the qualifier was offered right off the top is, I am not an Aboriginal, so how could I possibly speak for their community on questions like that? So simply posed it, and if someone, an Aboriginal leader, or anybody living in an Aboriginal community or of ab- Aboriginal status would like to offer their thoughts, that was what I was trying to attempt there, not saying what they should or should not think on that front, because how do I know? You know, but if the ultimate concern here is public safety, then, you know, I have to think it has to be a wide question about what bail really means. And the issue that Colin brought forward with a charge being discharged, even upon conviction, either convicted in court and or found guilty, it might not be reflected in your criminal record if you've received a discharge. It doesn't change the fact that you were indeed convicted of an intimate partner violence charge of one form or another. That's long been a conversation that they're having about bail uh, when it comes to domestic violence because that's one of the fears, as articulated for folks who have been on the receiving end of domestic violence, is that some, maybe it was the c- consideration of children in the equation or pets or a roof over your head or finances and or the possibility for the domestic violence to escalate when you make a formal complaint. We've seen examples of it. So you make a complaint, and the next thing you know, there's a much more dangerous situation created because the person feels aggrieved and holds you responsible for the fact they're now being investigated or have been arrested by the police. So that really does belong in bail reform, from my opinion, because I think the cases are clear. But ultimately here, and I think the government really needs to do a better job, regardless of who holds the seat of government, if we don't even have the data, the recorded number of cases where someone on bail committed a crime, whether it be uh, similar to the crime they're charged with or an escalated, more serious, violent crime, if we don't have those understandings of the numbers, then we, generally speaking, will create policy that would be politically expedient or politically beneficial or simply to quiet uh, opposing voices, when that might work sometimes, but we also ask ourselves or set ourselves up for poor decision-making and poor policy or not well-thought-through policy if we don't actually have any numbers. 
I don't dispute the fact that bail reform is required in this country. You know, it's not to the extent where people just call every single uh, criminal case catch and release because there are constitutional requirements that at this point, given how they're written, have to be abided by inside the courts. Now, when you hear someone's been arrested and it was a breach of conditions, it seems to be a bit of a turnstile. You and I can agree on that regardless of your political leanings. It does get frustrating to be a member of the general public where you see someone on the quote-unquote perp walk down the Atlantic place and the charges being listed also include not complying with bail conditions, for instance. It happens really fairly frequently. But then, of course, if we've got capacity issues in prisons right across the country and now we'll see the very much the likelihood of more and more people to be held without bail, we've got ourselves a remand problem already. If two-thirds of Her Majesty's penitentiary inmates have been charged, have not had their day in court, and that number, very likely, if this legislation gets passed, or even if there's more tightening afforded to this legislation via amendments, we're going to see that number grow. And is the prison system in the country even able to handle more and more inmates on remand? I mean, I, I just think that's part of the, one of the complicating uh, factors that doesn't really get addressed inside this proposed legislation. And then we also approached very quickly the issue regarding judge vacancies. I can't remember what it was, but it was certainly uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18, 15 to 18% of federal judge positions are currently vacant. Yes, you got to get it right. It can't be as willy-nilly as we've seen some former leaders in this neck of the woods uh, in this, on this continent make is, uh, when talking about appointing a federal judge. But with a Supreme Court ruling, which, of course, is precedent-setting and will be the rule and the law of the land, if we are going to see criminal charges in particular, and yes, some civil charges that just don't get adjudicated in the court of law because of the Jordan ruling and the uh, access to a speedy trial, that's not good for anybody. Like nobody but nobody. So when the federal government says, well, we've appointed whether it was four or 500 judges since 2015, the fact of the matter is that number is virtually irrelevant if the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada says that those vacancy numbers has led to having to prioritize one case or another because every charge that's brought forward is due in court and should be in court and should be heard, and yes, in a timely fashion. So the federal liberals, it's fine to tell me what you've done in so far as appointing judges, but if you haven't appointed enough, that seems to be the be-all and end-all to me. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box before we run out of time this morning. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Uh, email address is openlineofvocm.com. And, of course, my preference is when you take the opportunity through the course of the day, whether it be on a topic you hear me broach off the top of the program, whether it be on a topic that you think needs more discussion or elaboration, and, yes, if it's a topic you've never heard us talk about or seldomly talk about, we absolutely would look forward to that conversation, which we can do tomorrow, when we will indeed pick up this conversation right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.